I'm John Billingsley, and you are listening to Beyond Track Podcast. What are some thoughts of yours towards the whole, like, is Star Trek getting too woke? The idea that a show that exists to push the boundaries in terms of what is acceptable and what is and what it should be like just part of our human condition, which mm -hmm. is, you know, everybody on the fucking ship, everybody on the fucking ship, as long as you're nice. To me, it's like you can't be too woke. Fabulous. Big J, regular Renzo. And uh, you can call me Dag. All right, fair enough. John. Big Dag, regular Dag, little Dag. I'm going to call you little Dag. How about that? I will like take it. You like Donald we, Trump. Did little we record Dag. that? Did we get that? Yes. I want yes. That. Thank you. We, we got that. Dag, Big J. <laughs> medium medium size Renzo. Should we call you Medium John or like no, Little John, like Robin Hood, right? Yeah, why don't you call me Two Messing John? How about that? Okay. <laughs> thick as a brick, John. Or I'm going to oh, close well. the door because my wife's going to start listening to this and commenting. From oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good idea. All right. Well, now that we hit I the high note. I'm going to close the door. <laughs> oh, there's part of that library you were talking about. Yeah, he's got a ton of books. Uh, that I, is a I, lot of uh, books. This is this is a this is the surface of the surface. I'm afraid this is uh, the. There are books there's more. I think. Oh yeah, there are books. There are books in everywhere. You're seeing one like this. This thing right here. Uh -huh. That is that is a. There are three levels, and that's one level. Oh wow! And that shelf. There are four uh -huh. levels. Wow. Okay. Uh, four, like they go four back, four deep. So, and this is I, one, and this is one room, and you're not seeing all the shelves in this room. I got about twenty five thousand books. Oh my! That's actually on our list of questions. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, about I know, your... I'm a, I'm a, I'm a. Well, what I really am is fucked up, is what I am. <laughs> what I'm concerned about though is in two years since the interview I read, you've gone from fifteen thousand to twenty five thousand. Whoa! That's a, yeah, I mean that's a, that's a that's a that's a guesstimate. I don't know. Okay. Maybe it's twenty thousand. But yes, I have. When when did we last chat? So that was from 2018, where you said that. Okay, well then, well maybe maybe it's yeah, maybe I'm exaggerating. Then if I said 15, then I don't know, I don't count, but I do buy a lot of books. 2020 kind of fucked me up because oh yeah yeah same yeah. I where do you get all the books? Uh, um, most libraries in Los Angeles have library bookstores. Okay, and you get really great bargains there. And there's one, unfortunately, uh, really good library bookstore. That's on the walk I take when I'm memorizing lines. Mm -hmm. So if I have a good day memorizing lines, I reward myself by buying books. And if I have a bad day memorizing lines, I make myself feel better by by buying books. So yeah, yeah. yeah. It's hey, my problem. My whole fucking career, it's like you know, <laughs> it's like reward, punishment, solace. It's all involves buying books. Good, good. I'm, there's a question I wanted to ask later. I'm hoping I remember. I'm actually going to write it down. It was about what you just said uh, with with lines. So uh, I've right. got to have that. Yes, I'm trying to learn a mouthful of them right now, and I'm I'm, I'm sadly realizing that I'm, I'm. Oh, so you got the script I sent you for this interview? So I don't like you like an idiot, right? <laughs> no, this is a really good part on a movie that I'm never going to fucking get because they're going to look for a name, and I still have one for it, which is incredibly irritating. Huh. Well, we'll just I, I'm going to give you all the interview shit before the interview actually starts. Uh, so I just wanted you to feel comfortable that I'm here, and now I'm going to make myself an alcoholic beverage. So I will be back. Excellent. Okay. Uh, is it Talk amongst yourselves. 
Awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> Let's leave now. <laughs> All right. I am back. And this is a podcast, right? So we can start anytime you guys want, right? Yeah. This Basically. Is, yeah. Oh, this yes. is audio and video. So we're on YouTube and all the places people get podcasts. Oh, so it's going, is it going live? Are people going to actually watch this live? No. We're not streaming right now. We're okay. going to publish this sometime next week. I okay, cool. I, yeah. Uh, There's an online Star Trek convention coming up. Um, yeah. And so we'll premiere it for that. So that way we can talk to uh, the, the viewers. So yeah. it won't be like live, live. It'll be semi-live. Semi-live. Right. Secondhand live. Secondhand live. Yeah, we'll be watching, all watching together, but it won't truly be live. But we are doing a couple actually real live stream reviews during this uh, this online thing. So okay. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. So what do you got there? Do I look pretty enough for you? Do you I do. I think you're great. Hiding myself or anything? I feel like I, mean, I overdressed. Unless you got the Denobium prosthetics to attach. I mean, that'd be the only possible Denob way. How, pronounce it. How, what'd you say? Denobulin? Denobulin. Denobulin. <laughs> Yeah. Denobian. I don't know. It sounded a little Denobian rough the first time. Denobulin. But you also have the Zelayan from my background, which was fantastic too. That seemed like a fun gig as well. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I got it. So, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, but. Well, let's, no um, let's do some meta announcements here uh, for the listeners and the viewers. Obviously, you may or may not be able to tell, but we got John Billingsley from Star Trek Enterprise on the call. Um, not exclusively from Star Trek Enterprise. John has a lengthy career portfolio dating back to what IMDb says is 1988, but, you know, that was that was a while ago, maybe. Um, it was sentient before 1988, so I think I have a portfolio <laughs> that my own I don't portfolio. Think I, can say the same. I was sentient before 1988, and so was Jay. So it's like three out of four of us. My portfolio yes. goes back to 1960, baby. Oh, okay. When I was slapped on the ass, my portfolio began. <laughs> 520. That's like a month late. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. missed it by a month it was close so all close good. it's all good um thanks everybody for being here today uh we have no idea we're boldly going bonkers in this uh in this interview today um john thank you so much for joining us um when i randomly retweeted you on friday did not expect i would be here um so i'm blown out i'm the quite the slut i'm the most sluttish person <laughs> on star trek i indiscriminately <laughs> respond to invitations hither and yon. <laughs> We're glad you do. Behind me. Oh, oh, okay. Is this going to come ah. up? This, will this come up on the podcast? It won't. Well, yes. You do. Well, yeah. She she was a Borg. She was the littlest Borg in season two of Enterprise, the show that killed the franchise. Regeneration. Oh, Regeneration, yes. Uh, the yeah. episode that killed the franchise. I'm um, sorry. That was my favorite episode. Oh, well, what are you talking about? Well, there you go. All right. Then she has to tell you. Uh, uh, yeah, she was borgified, and uh, I visited her on the set that day because she was going to get killed, and I wanted to watch. So, I'm going to make that note again for later about the um, that episode being the show that that killed it. So when we get around uh, to the episode that killed the the show that killed the franchise was, I think, the one with Todd Malakshi, where she was walking around in in mud with Connor, and they had a love affair, and it's like, oh god, yeah. <laughs> oh well, Hell we will. We Hell of a cook, Bob Malakshi. Uh -huh. Not saying anything against her, her cooking skills. 
And if I could have married uh, Salman Rushdie, I probably would have done it too. So. <laughs> well, we will definitely be revisiting uh, your uh, your time with Star Trek. But first, I wanted to talk to you about the Hollywood Food Coalition. Um, You're going to make me start on a serious note. All right, fair enough. Well, you know, let, I mean, we, if we do the Star Trek last, then maybe people will actually listen through the whole thing. Maybe. I don't um, know. Are you sure you don't want to get a reverend me out of the way and yeah. kind of segue into mature, sophisticated me? Because it's going to come and go. We'll have right. serious topics and then fun ones that, interspersed. Yes, I am the president of the board of directors of an organization called the Hollywood Food Coalition, which has been around for about 33 years. It exists to help address issues of food insecurity in and around LA County. And we started as an organization that works specifically with people who are experiencing homelessness, providing a hot, nourishing five course meal seven nights a week. We still do that. We call that our community dinner. We also have a community wellness program, which is designed to help people who come to us every night with daily necessities, shoes, clothing, sleeping bags, knapsacks, toothpaste, toiletry kits, you name it, bus passes, laundry vouchers. We help them access medical vans provided by UCLA, and we connect them with other social service organizations. The biggest thing we've been doing, though, of late is we have dramatically expanded the nature of how we rescue and share food. So we have a second space, and we have a program there we call the Community Exchange Program, which my wife, that wonderful little Borg behind you, her name is Bonnie Friederici, helps to run. And essentially, we rescue almost mm, 20,000 pounds of food a week, and we share that food with our own kitchen and with anywhere between 40 and 60 other community nonprofits. We help, in essence, augment, supplement, and build the food programs that their organization doesn't quite have the capacity to run on their own. So our gag is we try and be a concierge service, in essence, providing exactly what these small not-for-profits need so that their food programs can really answer the needs of their clients. Um, and additionally, we have a fourth program we call community building. And that is, in essence, a way to recognize that a lot of the work we do, it's rooted in our name, Hollywood Food Coalition. A lot of the work we do through volunteerism, through building coalitions between uh, community groups, between political groups, and et cetera, is to increase everybody's understanding of how working together helps fight food insecurity. So thousands of volunteers come through our doors every year. We have people come in every day to help us cook and serve and rescue food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we think volunteerism is a lot of the answer to the problem. That's my elevator pitch. Bing, bang, bong. That's fantastic. Um, I've always been enamored of groups like yours that, you know, sort of work on the mentality that, yeah, if we all work together, we can help a lot more people. Um, I'm yeah, super yeah. fascinated by it. And I've been reading up on it this whole last week. Um, so I hope to be a it, continuing it's, it's, I mean, it's a, um, why it's a passion of mine, I don't know. I've always been involved as sort of a, I mean, I'm, I'm an actor. I've been an actor my whole life, but the other passion for me has always been uh, working in the social service field, as usually as a board member, um, volunteering as well. And hunger and issues surrounding hunger and poverty have always been very close to, close to me. Um, one in four uh, kids in America these days, it's gotten worse, of course, because of COVID, right. wakes up food insecure. In the richest country in the world, in the history of the world, one in yeah. four kids basically wakes up, and it's not that they're not necessary, they may eat, but they don't know when they're going to eat, where they're going to eat, what they're going to eat. Are they going to eat enough? Will they go to bed hungry? Will the food be nourishing? Will they feel like uh, you know they've they've had a, they've had a they've had a, a you know a, a, enough? 
uh, to me, that's just, you know, that's a, a moral outrage. And 40-ish percent of the food we produce in our country just gets scrapped, just goes to waste. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's, it's, uh, it's probably what I do and acting now is kind of like, you know, uh, second on the list because <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a lot of work. We're growing. We're trying to respond to a lot of needs. If people want to support us, hofoco.org is our website, H-O-F-O-C-O.org. You can follow us on Twitter. You can follow me at, what's my Twitter handle, guys? You know. Jay Billingsley 60. Bingo. If you don't know how to find Hollywood Food Coalition, come to me and I'll get you hooked up to them. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram. There's probably a bunch of other social media shit we do that I don't know about. Fortunately, I don't have to worry about that stuff. We'll make sure to get all your links in the description of the show too. Fabulous. Absolutely. Um, go ahead, Jay. I, I, was, I was just going to ask, so John, you mentioned rescuing food. Now for the, for the layman, I can assume I know what that means, but could you, could you explain that just a little more, what you mean by rescuing food? Yeah, it can come from all sorts of different places. Before COVID, for instance, because I was an actor and I'd see all this amazing food on sets get tossed. Mm-hmm. My wife and I organized a team of volunteers to, to drive around. We had 40 or 50 of us. And we'd pick up food from TV shows and film sets. And we'd rescue all this amazing food. There's a, there's a, a set of intricacies surrounding how food rescue works. And it depends on the state. There's a federal law called the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Act that essentially says food that is fit for human consumption can be rescued. Some states interpret that to mean different things. Some states specifically exclude food put out on a buffet table. Other states do not. And then it gets more complicated because individual counties and individual health departments weigh in. Mm. Uh, we, We take a Catholic approach. We say if the food hasn't been plated, we want it because it's too good to waste. However, a lot of organizations, for them, what rescuing means is food that has reached its expiration date at a grocery store or is at the verge of being, uh, you know, reaching an expiration date, food that might have been prepared by a caterer but wasn't ever actually put on a buffet table. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of uh, um, businesses uh, throw big parties and enormous amounts of food never even make it out of the kitchen. There are a lot of programs, particularly right now, that are state and county programs that are designed to get restaurateurs to make prepackaged meals to be delivered to various constituencies. They make more food than the system knows what to do with. We take the excess. Uh, There are a lot of farm-to-table programs that, for instance, box up produce and try and deliver it all around the city. We take what doesn't get delivered. Uh, Orchards, farms, you name it. There are all sorts of interesting places to get food, and individuals can do canned food drives, packaged food drives. We take it all. Now, tell me, why is it, in in your opinion, uh, either opinion or that you just know, if this food is going to be good, perfectly edible, why is it getting thrown away as opposed to you and people like you and your organization being able to just pick it up. Why do you have to go on a scavenger yeah. hunt? To try well, to first off, this? look in your refrigerator. Mm-hmm. How much food do you throw out? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's okay. where you start. We, right. we, we, are, we overconsume. We yeah. overproduce and we overconsume. And by overconsume, I mean that we purchase more than we need. Yes. And there really aren't mechanisms for the individual consumer to get food that they think, you know, eh, I'm probably not going to get to this. I'll just chuck it as opposed to I'll, deli- I'll give it someplace else. 
So a lot of food goes to waste in, in that respect. But the other thing is that big businesses exist by creating more than they actually can distribute. They always want to have more. If you end up as, a, as somebody who makes something and somebody says, I'll take gajillion, and you say, I've only got half a gajillion, they may A, go elsewhere, and B, you're going to feel like, oh, fuck, if I'd only made a gajillion. Yeah. So okay. some of it is overconsumption is baked into the pie. Overproduction is baked into the pie of the capitalist model. I got you. Okay. you know, I can go on and on. You don't want to hear me talk about food all night because I can, but it's it's like, you know, it'll 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 be tedious. There are many, many, there are many, many reasons why it's difficult to rescue food, ranging from problems with it's it, for one thing, it's it's labor intensive. Mm -hmm. To rescue food means you've got to have have the capacity to pick it up, which means you've right. got to have people who are gonna pick it up, which means you're either paying them or you're relying on volunteers. Yeah. yeah. And you know, there really aren't a, there's not a lot of money around to pay for people to go and pick up stray food. And they probably need big pickup trucks, vans, if they don't have it. Now, uh, I don't wanna tie up yeah. the entire topic with the questions, but John, I'm gonna tell you this little funny tidbit that I tell my sister, and if she listens to this, she's going to kill me, but I like to tell her that her refrigerator is full, but no two things could make a meal. Ah, Ouch. interesting. Oh well, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. You know, when I when I grew Kathy, up, Kathy, if you hear this, I love you. Don't kill me. <laughs> I, I, you see, you're gonna get me started on social issues, and I can go, yeah. I can go on and on because oh, that's it, the next topic. <laughs> when I grew up, I was lucky because I grew up in a fairly wealthy community, and the tax base allowed our school system to offer such things as home ec. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Uh, not to mention a shop and you know, photography and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. We don't teach our kids to cook. We don't teach our kids goddamn thing about what food means, how to grow it, how to prepare it, how to save it, how to store it. We don't teach them shit. You're right. Yep. So, Sustainable. Yes. And sustainability is ultimately a function of how much respect we as a society place in our education system. Nothing we do is sustainable right now because we don't give a flying fuck about educating our children. We might think the opposite in some circles. It's if we don't teach them, they'll overconsume, and that's what we want. Yes, and you could argue that there's also a strain of thought that believes that as long as you don't teach kids, they'll grow up to be serfs. And then we can mm -hmm. shit. And they can be a nice little form of effectively slave labor for us. Oh Don't get boy. me started, baby. Oh so we've gone from Beyond Trek podcast to Communist Trek podcast at this point. And I'm totally yeah. in. You know what? And the thing is, I'm totally not a, I'm totally not a communist because that doesn't work. Because you no, put power work. you put power into the hands of the state, and the problem is the state's fucking corrupt. Yeah. So, yeah. It, you know, I mean, I, eventually there's a balance to be found. And I think a lot of the a lot of the, the Scandinavian countries have, have done a better job than most at finding that balance between a state that actually assumes certain responsibilities to its citizens that requires them to intervene in a managed economy while recognizing that the heavy fucking club ain't mm. the fucking answer either. Mm -hmm. We don't need tankies running this show at all. Which so. seems like it should be common sense, you know, but, you yeah. know. Mm. I so, have a so, couple more questions about uh, Hafu Ko, but 
Renzo? I've got one question just about how you got into the activism side of this. Now you mentioned that you don't remember like how you got, how you started caring about this, right? But surely there's like some good anecdote you can tell us about how like, listen, in high school, I- Yeah, I, I yeah, I, look, I was a, I was a four-eyed fucking dweeb, you know? I mean, <laughs> I was gonna get pushed in the hallway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it starts from having a sense of where are you? Are you an underdog or are you an overdog? And if you're an underdog, you grow up giving a fuck about the underdog, you know, and I've always cared about the underdog. I believe that I'm an underdog and I like underdogs, consequently, and I can sing the underdog theme song. Man, I just shared an underdog gif with a friend of mine. Really? I can't. <laughs> yeah. I can't. I love underdog. <laughs> underdog. Underdog. Yeah. That takes me back. This is going to be my ringtone. <laughs> Underdog. Does anybody remember the words? I don't remember the words. I kind of remember the tune. That's I it. remember seeing it when I was really little. <laughs> Underdog and Sweet Polly Purebred, which you could never get away with as a name now, of course, was, I believe, his. Sweet uh, Polly Purebred? That was his girlfriend. What was the girlfriend's name? Uh, sweet, sweet Polly Purebred, who was you... also, I believe, a beagle. Uh -huh. So I suppose you could get away with the name Sweet Polly Purebred, except it's a little racist. Oh, okay, okay. I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought that when you when you said that, but you, yeah, she you know, was the I... reporter. She was a reporter. Okay. See, look at you. You know yours. You know. Yeah, I remember <laughs> this bit. Yeah. Yeah, but you're yeah. the worst of the song. There's a lot when, of cartoons that can't be When seen. criminals in the world appear and break the laws that they should fear and frighten all who see or hear, the cry goes up both far and near for... Underdog! Underdog! <laughs> Very good. I know Speed of lightning, know. roar of thunder, fighting all who rise of wonder. Uh, underdog, of underdog, underdog. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, he was on around the same time as Bullwinkle. So some people were Bullwinkle guys and some people were underdog guys. I was addicted I to Mr. Peabody and Sherman. So I loved Rocky and Bullwinkle because Boris and Natasha were like the most hilarious characters to me. Yeah. Their hijinks were epic to me. Yeah. yeah, it was a golden, it was in many respects a golden age of, of smart cartoonery. Uh, it was. Um, yeah. So yeah, just the, the last cartoons. John, how many mouths do you think Hofoko has fed in the last 33 years? Oh, in the analytics? 30, in we the can last, the last year, sure. Yeah, well, I'll say, let, me, let me talk about the last couple of years because as, as wonderful as the work was in the first 25, 26, 27, 28 years, we were really centered on street service. So we served a considerably smaller cohort of people in the last couple of years, after we started expanding food collection, and when you consider that what we're doing right now is, in essence, uh, helping to support a lot of different food programs, I would say we're probably serving, roughly speaking, around three quarters of a million meals a year. Wow. Um, and we're that's, we're... that's quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, saintly in my, in my book. I, you know, the, the, the big thing that appeals to me is that is that and it's something that's hard for me to kind of articulate as as clearly as I sometimes wish, because it's 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 um, ephemeral coalition building means the world to me. One of the things that I find is that because we're working with 50 or 60 other organizations and helping to support their programs, it's like it's a wonderful life. You don't know the good you do because you can't see it. If I help by supplying good food to a program that exists to work with street kids. The street kids that come to that program are gonna, are gonna you know, sit up straight and pay attention because they're getting a good meal. 
you know? If we're supplying food to an organization that basically works with folks who are going through an alcohol and drug rehabilitation program, it makes all the difference in the world to have a good breakfast as opposed to a shitty breakfast. And and that's what what to me the the the, the way we kind of vocalize this is we say food is the way in. It's the one thing you, you gotta do two things every day. You gotta take a dump and you gotta eat. You know? <laughs> I, there is not an offer profit that I know of that is rooted in, you know, in like, can I help you take a dump? Not always in that order. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's a, you know, suppositories ick. I don't know. We focus on the other important daily need. And when you start with that, and then we consider there's like a pyramid of needs. From there. Yeah, those hierarchy even. Yeah, exactly. Bingo. Bingo, bingo, bongo, you know? First a meal, and now how about a pair of shoes and a warm coat and and a hat? And now how about you know there's a medical van outside? Can we can we attend to your your open wound? Can we make sure that you've got some medication you need? And now after that, you know, do you do you have a place to sleep? Because we might be able to hook you up with a housing program. And now after that, you know, maybe some therapy and some mental health services might. And now after that, maybe a job. And that's the thing. That's wellness. It's you climb the ladder, but you got to start every day. You got to have a meal. Uh, that almost yeah. sounds like an economic bill of rights. Maybe we should get like a government that provides us some of these guarantees. <laughs> really? Roosevelt. Yes. Yeah, Roosevelt's four freedoms. Damn straight. Uh, I got to tell you, this was not the conversation I thought we were going to have, but this is the right. conversation I wanted to have. Uh, okay, yeah. Yes. It's been a, you know, it's a long, twisty motherfucking road. Oh, by the way, I swear a lot, and I hope that's all right. I, I am the oh. most profane with the possible exception of dominic keating actor in star trek oh yeah i i was actually going to compare you to marina sirtis but oh, she's good too Marina's great. she's good too she's good too um yeah yeah so and we're all has-beens that's why we can get the fuck away with it you know oh, like, no renzo and i did marina a- i said that <laughs> renzo and i uh if marina watches this podcast that would be amazing but um uh, Renzo I, and I attended. If I thought she was, I wouldn't have called her a husband. I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Renzo and I attended the first uh, trek to victory for Biden uh, ah. back in October, and we we loved everything Marina had to say during that event. Um, so yeah, let's transition into our next topic. Um, Renzo, go for it. So I've got a thing for you just off the second. Uh, Biden trek to victory thing that went on just last weekend for the uh, Georgia runs as well. Why and, wasn't I invited? Well, yes, absolutely a concern. Absolutely. Uh-huh. You're one of those outspoken Trekkies around, right? But the thing that Marina said... And I was and, on the show that killed the franchise. I'm sorry, go ahead. And that Wilson Cruz said as well that I really wanted to bring up with you because I thought it was just a really brilliant uh, comment from Wilson Cruz uh, who plays in Discovery. Uh, he said that part of the reason why Star Trek's actors are so outspoken and why they're so liberal and why they're so unafraid to be liberal is because they spend their time and their day acting in a future that already accepted all these values. So they can pretend to be in a world that already accepted these things we should have now, right? Yeah, I go along with that. You? Yeah. I would go along with that to a certain extent, except I would say that it's writ larger than that. The very nature of acting, the very essence of what we do, and I don't understand the John Voights and the, you know, the, 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 <laughs> is to put yourself in the other person's shoes. That's what progressives do by definition. You're a progressive because you say, I believe in helping. It's a bitch to try and be a progressive because you have to say, oh, oh and over there, and, and over there, it's a bitch. 
Yeah. But that's what actors do by definition. So I don't think it's necessarily because of the genre. It's because of the nature of what it is that we devote our lives to trying to be better at, which is empathy. Yeah. Well yeah, said. That's, that's fantastic. So pivoting off of that, I want to remind you of a tweet. What does it mean to be a mucky or muckety muck? A mu you know, a mucky muck. A muckety muck is a big shot. Uh, I'm I'm less mucky oh, than than uh, Marine Service. Uh, they're all. <laughs> I was on the show that killed the franchise. Right. You say that. You say that. But that. I I want you to know that number one, Flox is my favorite character. I'm not trying to like kiss your ass or anything. I have no objection to people kissing my ass. Kiss <laughs> Flox is my favorite character. And the reason he's my favorite character, and we're getting way ahead of ourselves by talking about Star Trek now, but anyway, he's my favorite character because I always saw Flox as sort of the galaxy weary dude who has seen it all and done it all. And here he is with these humans and like, oh, let's see what they're gonna see. Ooh. And mm -hmm. I love Flocks because he's just seen you know, you know what I liked about Flocks is that is that I played all these fucking psychopaths down there. <laughs> <laughs> Child molesters and serial killers. And I don't know why, but Hollywood seemed to like me as kind of a as kind of a, a you know a, a fiend. And Flocks was was so much closer to me. I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, yeah, be passionate about shit. But at the end of the day, your first obligation as a human being is to live joyfully. That's yeah. that's how you get shit done. And it's how you go through life without wanting to cut your throat. And I think Flox, he wasn't as as uh, perhaps <laughs> vociferous as I can be. But Flox lived joyfully, yeah, you know. And and I I think that's most Star Trek characters do and in, in in you know in all honesty because it's baked into the pie of the show, but for me as an actor that was rather an unusual part for me to get to play. Yeah, we have mentioned um, IDIC, infinite diversity and infinite combinations on the show a lot because, I mean, we talk about Star Trek sometimes. Um, but to I, me, I, I tell people all the time I was the first bisexual on Star Trek. I had three wives, and third, I had three husbands, and yeah. you know, sometimes there were four of us, sometimes there were seven of us, sometimes there were two of us, sometimes there was only half of us, which was me, and I didn't know how to do that, but... Denobulans just wanted to fuck their brains out, didn't they? Denobulans. Denobulans. Oh, Denobulans. I can understand why... Standing in my track card now. Under the circumstance, we were talking about masturbation, so I forgive you, but... And it's, oh. here's the issue. where are you from? Dunno. Dunno. <laughs> so, okay. Um, People on but, the show couldn't pronounce it. That's why we were the show that killed the franchise. I we always thought. even pronounce our own fucking culture. <laughs> Listen, you're going to ask a fantastic question, Dag. Bring it. Go for I'm it. I'm never going to forget it. But no, I just want to keep kissing his ass by saying, um, you know, Enterprise came on right when I graduated and started going to college. And I was there every goddamn week watching that show because I was living in a 250 square foot apartment. Ah. And I was I was rollerblading my way to school. Uh, well, you were and... not living in, for instance, Bumfuck, Texas, where they canceled the show every Friday night to put on the college football game of the week. We didn't even get canceled for college football. We got canceled for fucking high school football. But that's in I Texas. There's some place that canceled us for junior high fucking football, too. I just don't know about it. Texas well, is serious about their high school football. I, this is one of the reasons we died, is we weren't, we were on UPN. UPN mm -hmm. had, had no clout and no weight to throw around. And CBS, basically the parent company of UPN, did not extend their weight. So as a 
as a syndicated show, various markets had a lot more freedom than most markets usually have to determine whether or not they even wanted to air it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of markets simply did not air our show. So some of the reason our ratings tanked was because episodes kind of were sucky. Some of the reasons our ratings tanked is because the show would get yanked off the air from week to week, and it, you couldn't rely on it even being on. Yeah, in a modern setting with streaming the way things are, I think that Enterprise would have gone on for a full seven seasons without any issues. It, it's interesting now in that a lot of people who have caught up to it on streaming, and I don't know, you know, because people are kissing my ass because I don't know why, because I'm so attractive and my ass is my best feature. A lot of people are kind I'm of- I'm sure Bonnie agrees. Bonnie would not agree. Bonnie has not recognized any of my features as being good, much less ranking them hierarchically. <laughs> she, um, people have said that they actually are really coming to it and appreciating it in ways they didn't when it was first on. And I, I think some of that is, is getting to see them all sequentially. And some of it is, is you know, when it, when it aired, there was a little, I mean, I think there's probably Star Trek fatigue right now. Maybe, maybe not. But at the time, after, you know, without a break, Next Gen, Deep Space, Voyager, our show, we didn't get even like a month off, or the creators didn't get a month off. I think the, the, the fan base was like, kind of like, could I just take like a year and just like, you know, just a well, year? Well, that's, that's an interesting part though, right? Like the original air date for the first episode was September 26th of 2001, right? So you, you started just after like 9-11. Right. And the show very quickly was branded as being a post 9-11 Star Trek show and that your plot lines were more friendly to Texas, even though Texas didn't want to air your episodes. Right. The, the inclusion of like a southern uh, main character was seen as being more of an outreach to try and bring yeah. in more fans. Right. Although, although in, in point of fact, I mean, we we were we were in production. Well, of course, before oh, for sure happened and the Bible for was sure. created well before 9-11 happened. I, I didn't think our show really grappled with 9-11 until season three. And then it did it in a way that I considered to be problematic in all candor. But mm -hmm. um, yes, which well, I, I, have, I have expressed and will continue to express, even though I don't think that's necessarily a. You know, the Zindi attack is a very clear analog. Totally with you on that. Yeah. So. Well, it was also, there was an episode in which the captain is going to throw somebody out of an airlock, and basically right. his his justification is, is you know, the ends justify the means. It's mm -hmm. like, I'm sorry, but when did Dick Cheney become the captain of our ship? <laughs> and I, I, yeah. I love, and Scott doesn't write the episodes, and I love Manny Cotto. I adore Manny Cotto, and some of the very best episodes of that show were season three. When Manny took over, he brought a, a, a breath of fresh air, I think, mm -hmm. to that show. No slam on Brandon, no slam on Rick. They kept that franchise alive for many, many years, and I think they've done, you know, extraordinary work. But they never got a fucking break. They were asked to get, like, boom, right out of the gate, out of Voyager, into Enterprise. I think Manny brought a certain energy to the show that really lifted it. I just, as a, as a leftist, and Manny's not a leftist, as a, he's a leftist in certain respects, but okay. the part of me that kind of objects to the national security state and to a lot of the ways we have, when I, when 9-11 happened, my first thought was, we're going to fuck this up. We're going to turn it into a war. We're going to go and attack the Middle East. Hundreds of thousands of people will die. Thousands of our own fucking people will die. We're mm -hmm. going to waste a fortune, and it will come to naught in the end. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember saying that at the time, and like people were like, fuck you. It's like, yeah, well, wait and see. I, I so that's why my nickname is Cassandra Billingsley. <laughs> I'm testing your knowledge of the classics. 
So hey, I, I, that, that's, that just shut you guys down. I, I'm expecting you to roll with this shit. Come on. I, 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 I'm still in awe of that line. When did Dick Cheney become the captain of our ship? That's just such a good fucking line. Well, I, I love Scott. I adore Scott. So don't get me wrong. You know, I mean, I, and again, we don't write that. We don't write it. There are episodes. There, there's an episode where I was like, it turned out I was in the Denobulan infantry. It was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I was in the squad. Is that a squawk? That was a squawk, yeah. Oh, you heard my squawk story. Right? I have heard the squawk story. Um, so, yes, um, your prophecy is never to be believed, sir. Yeah, a prophet <laughs> is without honor in his own country, especially in America. Well, I personally blame Les Moonves, but we don't have to talk about him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, UPM, look at UPM. You know, what was his big show? Wrestling. It was. Don Don Ostroff, who I never met, and I'm sure she's a lovely woman, but Don Ostroff famously, I'm sure you've heard this story, but it always makes me laugh, said in season three, is there any possibility that the Enterprise could stop on a planet and pick up, you know, like a boy band? What? So No. That may be a Bullshit, really? Oh, man. But I I tell you, I... Look at UPN's slate. Look yeah, it ended up on Voyager, so we do know that there's got to be some interplay on these I things. Know, right? UPN did not have a show that that really took off because, let's see, when um, when Enterprise aired, I was a year out of college, and you're, you're right. UPN was supposed to be this flagship network for Star Trek, and all they had was Voyager as a hook, and then Enterprise. There was wrestling. But there was yeah, there's wrestling what, and a bunch of crap. And, and when you think about how television functions, I mean, if you're a if you're a producer or a writer mm-hmm. and you want to pitch something, you're not going to take a meeting with UPN. You don't want your show on UPN. You're not going to make any money. You'll be ghettoized, and you'll have a blot on your resume. So nobody's they couldn't buy anything. I don't no, know I the see, name of the. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dang. Oh, I was just saying, I see UPN now as sort of like a prototype for Disney Plus and all these branded streaming sites that right. networks are gearing towards. Yeah, just very narrow focus niche audience, and that's all they care about kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. There was so, a show on UPN. I don't remember the name of it. This kind of tells you what it was like with UPN. The show, it was, it was played as a comedy, took place in the 1800s. Oh, with China with Pride about the Lincoln. Legend. What's that? Legend with MacGyver and John Delancey? No, no, no. No, this, no, no. It was this black man who was a uh, yeah. slave. Ty McBride. It, right. Wor- worked in the house and w- wasn't it with... Uh, wasn't he, was like, he was like Lincoln's like valet and Lincoln right. was a boob and Ty McBride was the one who did everything, you know, behind he, the Right. Scene. So here, here's a comedy during slave days with Abe Lincoln yeah. and his... You know. Yeah, that was the a secret wonderful. diary of Desmond Pfeiffer. Very that good. That Very good. good. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. That was a notorious flop. You got nine <laughs> episodes of that show, five of which went unaired. Oh, <laughs> real bad. Yeah. So, so I just want to make a point. If if the phone rings, let's just hold on until the phone stops ringing, and then we can move forward, so we don't catch it in our. Sorry, dialogue. I just un- I just muted myself as soon as it rang, so it's all good. Now. That's can we do this raw? I will try. Whenever they're shooting, it's like a plane goes overhead. It's just like so a plane goes overhead. Just fucking use it. <laughs> <laughs> but this is an apocalypse. There are no planes, John. But how does that work for Game of Thrones? The a coffee cup apparently <laughs> yeah. broke the internet for a week. Yeah. You show a guy in the background going. 
man. No, never waste um, a um, So, yeah. John, a question for you on the politics of your crew, yeah. right? So, we, when we've seen these various meetups of Star Trek actors and in conventions, it seems pretty unanimous that almost everyone on these shows seems to be pretty leftist, right? Mm-hmm. There are... There's the Barker exception. There's Roxanne Dawson, who's also very conservative. Um, did you guys ever have any sort of conflicts? In, oh, yeah. Did you guys ever have any conflicts in your crew about, like, the politics that you guys espoused? Like, was that ever, like, a tension point or anything? No, because, you know, in all candor, I mean, um, I'm really political, and I'm pretty vocal. But, uh, one, I was only on the set, you know, a couple days a week, max. And, and uh, I, 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 it's work, you know? I mean, there are very few workplaces that could tolerate people coming in and kind of throwing their political elbows around. I mean, it's really not appropriate. I'm political in venues like this, and if there were people on the show who were interested in talking about politics or who read the paper or read books and wanted to gab, I was always happy to do it. But I wasn't going to fucking elbow my way into a, you know, a big conversation and make an issue out of it. And generally speaking, not too many of the other cast members were that, I I don't want to say that they aren't politically conscious, but I don't think there were that many people on the show who were like, you know, like burned with a political- Guns blazing. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. Right on. Right on. Um, I wanted to ask, um, and this is sort of like a segue to Parter, like what issues are the most pressing do you think facing the U.S. right now? And what hopes do you have for the Biden administration to live up to them, if any? Well, I mean, I think the first issue, and I think it has to do with the nature of the fairness doctrine and what happened with the FCC, is that basically we have, you know, um, we have, there is Bullshit no news. way, there's no way, way to stop people from lying in the media. And so to the extent that we now live in a world in which it is possible for a good portion of the population to believe in complete untruths, um, what used to exist were mechanisms to uh, fight that. Those mechanisms no longer structurally exist. If it was up to me and I could snap my fingers, I would say money in politics and some version of the fairness doctrine needs to return to force liars on television, on the radio, and using social media to not lie anymore or pay the fucking price. Um, I don't know the answer to those questions because I don't have, unfortunately, a lot of belief that either money is going to be removed from politics, big money, uh, dark money, nor do I see us moving back to an age in, in this, you know, world of, of gajillion media sources of finding a way to differentiate between uh, truth and chicanery. So I don't have an answer for it, but I think that's probably a lot of what, to me, lies at the heart of our, our current dilemma. To just do what Machiavelli said in The Prince, if you lie in public, you're forced to defend your position or you get executed. That's actually a little too Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, if, if I had an immediate political solution, it would be abolish the Electoral College. Yes, yes, please. Uh, and if I had a secondary political solution, but this is something the Supreme Court has backed away from. It's, you know, to me, redistricting was, you know, the, of all the things that the Supreme Court has done that are pernicious in the last few years, the thing that to me has been the most pernicious has been the fact that they vitiated the Civil Rights Amendment and that they had gone out of their way to essentially say, we don't want to have anything to do with how states regulate their voting habits. 
So they have basically allowed states to do any number of pernicious – of all the things that get, gets me fucking furious is to see the Republican Party talk about chicanery in the elections when it's the Republicans that have practiced voter suppression, voter suppression, voter suppression for years. Across a swath of 14 states, what they've essentially done is yes. they've eliminated polling stations. They've made it impossible for people who are poor and people who are living in in, in poor circumstances to, to vote without having to stand in day-long lines. Fuck you, Wilbur. It's projection, right? Gaslight, obstruct, and project. That's what their party has become synonymous with at this point, right? It, it is fascistic. I mean, and I, it's, yes. you know, the, the problem with using the word fascism is that one immediately thinks of, like, you know, uh, of, of the concentration camps, and you go to the end result of fascism, which is what, you know, happened in, in, in Nazi Germany, as opposed to the nature of what the, the fascist philosophy is, which is rooted in, in, in extreme nationalism, demonizing a political enemy, making them seem subhuman and beyond the pale, which opens the door to then restrict their political rights. That is what fascism is ultimately about. It's about maintaining power by demonizing an enemy and giving yourself permission to do whatever the fuck you want with them. And we are living right now in a country where a lot of people support fascism. And when we think about that, you're right. We look at the end result and compare that to what's happening now. And that's used as an argument that, well, we're not a, a fascist country. Yeah. That's because you're yeah. thinking about the end result of yeah. Where it got to the 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 war, the concentration camps, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas we're we're starting on that and moving forward to that. And which brings me to another another point about the the big money and dark money being in the in the pockets of <clears throat> of our lawmakers. I was talking to my son uh, one day in the in the van. We just had these random conversations. Somehow we started talking about uh, electric cars. Uh, and he, he asked, he said, why aren't there more electric cars around? And I said, well, it's because there's too much money tied in still to gas and oil. If not for that, we would have electric cars probably everywhere. But because there are a lot of people that are making money off of you know, all these oil barons, et cetera, it's going to be very hard to push our technology and push ourselves yep. to the next level. And it's because yep. you've got people accumulating wealth, the, the 1% that want their money. And if they could, if they stand to lose profit by going to electric cars off of gasoline, they will do anything and everything they can to keep that from happening. And so that's why we're still more or less stuck where we are and really just barely getting a lot of these auto manufacturers <clears throat> to start playing ball and yeah. produce these cars. I, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I, I, and I sometimes catch myself, you know, um, there's much that is, is extraordinarily admirable about America and about our, our system and about the constitution. And I have every respect for what it is that you can point to over the long arc of American mm -hmm. history and say, wow, this this is this is this is um, something that could could have only happened here because of aspects of our system that helped us grow. Other aspects of our system have done nothing but suppress people's rights, and it's a strange fucking combination of good and evil. I think there are aspects. If you look at at, at hundreds of years of, of American history, there are aspects of what we've adopted as a free enterprise capitalist system that have helped to bring incredible. Uh, technologies to the forefront that have raised the standards of living for, for you know, undoubtedly billions of people around the globe. 
we have we we have we have done so much to lead the way to help eradicate many diseases, to help uh, lift people out of poverty, and and I recognize that. So I think it's really important to always maintain some th- that human capacity to keep opposite ideas in your brain at the same time. Mm-hmm. But this was nonetheless a constitution written by slaveholders for slaveholders, you know, and that's baked into the structure. And to a certain extent, the rich are always going to have more power. Roosevelt said that progressives get one whack at the pinata for every four that leftists get because the system demands that. And, wasn't and, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. W- wasn't there? I there are other countries that rewrite their constitution every so often. Uh, maybe every we amended years the ago. shit out of it for years. It's just of late we're so politically sclerotic. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, how many amendments have, have been introduced to the Constitution? I mean, a, a, a buttload, well into the into the latter half of the 20th century, we're amending the Constitution. It, it certainly needs to be re- rewritten because look at who wrote it and how far we've come in the 200 plus years. Absolutely. Yeah. We need I mean, to rewrite that bad boy. When people talk about originalism, I mean, this Scalia bullshit about originalism, it's like, originally, originally, the only people who could vote were rich white guys who owned land. So one of the things that we need to remember, though, is even those founders that were slave-owning white males believed that the Constitution should be rewritten regularly. Like, Jefferson thought we should trash it and rewrite it every 10 years regularly, maybe every 20. So... We've done tens a bit much. Although, although I have to say, uh, Jefferson is one of the guys that I think is like, boy, the more you read about Jefferson, the more you go, (laughs) yeah, he was kind of a sorry ass motherfucker in a lot of ways. I mean, some great ideas, but like, you know, he was one of the most politically naive in certain respects of our founders. He he believed that we were going to be an agrarian economy uh, uh, until the very end. And that consequently, we didn't have to worry about, you know, Hamiltonian, you know, pish posh about a national bank and an industrial policy and a trade policy. We don't need that. It's all yeoman farmers. (laughs) I I, I don't know. Jefferson's one of those guys. The more you read about Jefferson, it's like, (laughs) I mean, he did spend a lot of time with the French and he certainly stayed away during the actual revolutionary fighting. Not to say that he would not have fought but he was not there for the fighting. So yeah, he, he definitely had a he bit of a- He fled the, the capital yeah. of Virginia yeah. famously at one at one point, yeah. Yeah, but it, he definitely had that ivory tower like oh, yeah. opinion yeah. on things. Yeah, I mean, still a genius. I mean, you know- For sure. They, they, they were such, I just think Madison is the guy that's kind of like of all of them, that's like, you know, he was probably the guy that had the kind of dweebiest personality. So <laughs> if you think about like, you know, what he actually did, I mean, it's like, fuck, man. That's a good point. So there's a there's a show that you were on called The West Wing. Small show, not that big a deal, right? I, I've heard of it. Yes, yes, yes. It was about water to... ballet, as I recall. I, 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 I yes, I, I, I played one of the lead ballerinas in one of the episodes. <laughs> and you were wonderful in it. In I fact, you were in a scene. Way. Oh yes. Yeah. Uh, PAs was... and such. Yes. Anyways, you were in a fantastic scene talking about like the importance of things like adjusting maps and not using the Mercator projection. Now I have a bit of a history in geography and such, so that's something I'm a bit familiar with. Are, were did you find that you learned that from the show, or did you already know about like social justice as a part of using maps? Right? Like you I are knew, so I educated. I, I wasn't sure which way you'd come on. I knew something about it. I didn't know. I didn't know that much about it, but I knew something about it. I I, I knew that um, that had been. I knew. I knew the argument existed. 
Yeah. And uh, just to, for anyone in our audience, listening or watching, wondering, okay, what are you talking about with the maps? That's the whole thing where our maps have countries that are much larger than they're supposed to be, and also ones that are showing smaller than they really are. And so what happens is that skews rep representation or, uh, or it skews the perception. perception of, yes, yes. So there's... There's a lot of areas, a lot of states that are. Africa one way or the is other. so much fucking bigger than we realize. Yes. But the yes. map makers shrink it in size. There um, was a line you had in that scene about uh, where's Germany? Well, it's not where you think it is. <laughs> yeah. And, and now they have adopted the Peters uh, map, uh, I believe, in uh, the Boston school system, or is it Massachusetts writ large? You know? So in Miami, we had multiple maps, and they would specifically show us, like, here's the Mercator, and here's why it's shitty, here's your Peterson projection, here's why it's okay. much better. But better than all those, have a globe, right? So they, mm. they were a bit smart-ass about it in Miami. Now, the one, the one thing that I, I suspect that, that I learned in school, in Mr. Bowditch's class, is he made us learn how to read a fucking map. Ooh. And that's the thing that I think is really, you know, probably lost. It's like, you know... Well, yeah, you can Google... Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, I mean, here, kid, here's a roadmap. Get me from blank to blank, you know, figure out <laughs> Down how long, the street. Yeah, figure out how long it's going to take, figure out an alternate route, um, you know, uh, uh, God forbid, on a global map. Or here, here's a map in a foreign language. Figure oh. that out. Mm -mm. And um, here I live in shame because I live off my GPS. I can't get anywhere without it at this point. Well, we all do, but that's one of the things I think that's sort of like, you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm a strange combination of a, of a Luddite and a, a technologist. I suck at all technology. I can barely tie my shoes, but I appreciate, you know, caring a lot about history that, that we are where we are because of the advance of technologies. None of us would want to live in 1633. We'd all be dead by now in all likelihood. Uh, you know, where the people, if they live to 35, were like old fucking men, you know, for the most part. So I respect, I respect all that. But what has happened is that, is that none of us could uh, hitch a horse to a plow. Mm -hmm. None of us could fix a jalopy. None of us could uh, build a house. None of us could do a gajillion things that people, there's a wonderful book called uh, the, the uh, Shop Work as Soul Craft. And the argument there is that is that we have so lost, and I'm the epitome of this, we've so lost our capacity to do things that for generations were absolutely integral to mm -hmm. life and to the and to a certain extent to the development of the human character, because they taught people to build things slowly and meticulously. We now are an instant gratification world in which we expect to get from A to B just like that. I'll click a button, boom, boom, boom. And I think it's one of the reasons we are fucked up. Yeah. That's you could argue that that's the that's the actual like end result of capitalism, right? Like when capitalism's primary drive is to make things more efficient and cheap, then things become so efficient and so cheap that they are instant, and that changes the way society behaves, right? Yeah. So yeah, if I had to build a log cabin, I would be screwed. And with the GPS oh, yeah. thing, I, there was a, a time I missed an exit by about a good probably half hour because I did not realize that Google maps had froze up on my phone. It's a phone sitting over here on the, on the seat and I have my headphones on, which will give you, you know, in two miles, take your dumb ass here. And I, I started thinking, wait a minute, I think I should have 
gotten to this exit by now. So I look at my phone and it locked up. So I was going yeah. to the ends of nowhere because of the technology gave yeah, up on me. It's great for bar bets. I mean, there's nothing better than being at a bar and say, oh yeah, well, I know who won the Oscar in 1933 for best supporting actress. And you're <laughs> bucks right there. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, great for that. that. That's great. I love that. It's, it's incredible to me. Sometimes we do these like head guesses. Everybody asks, you know, if a historical figure from the founding of the United States came to America today, what would they think? And we all like to sit there and think, well, we have shopping malls and streets and cars and all these other things. That guy'd be arrested so quick because he just wants to hunt his food and go stumble onto somebody else's land and build a house right away. <laughs> like, no, no. Oh, imagine, the conversation, imagine the conversation with the founders about like, so you guys made the electoral college and when you did, you made it so that every state only had two senators for each one and that was part of the representation. How would you feel about California with 55 million people only having two senators well, in the Senate? Like, and, and, the and, first question being, yeah. California what now? California, 55 yeah, million right. what now? So, and, and, and their senators were supposed to be, uh, senators were appointed. That was one of the constitutional right. amendments which brought you know, I mean, and there's some people want to go back to having them appointed again. It's like, no, not backwards, not backwards, yeah. jerk. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Um, you're not, not going to ask me any Star Trek shit, which is interesting because this is the first podcast I've ever been on where I've really not talked about Star Trek. Star yes. Quote it, quote it, publish it. I know. It's like, you're not, you know, it's like, uh, you don't want to know. You don't want to bore you with the same questions. You want to secret vices or <laughs> any of that shit? I or? tried to mention like in the call, like we try to go beyond and just get to the nitty gritty of you. I'm not, no, I'm not complaining. It's just making me laugh. It's like, I'm just awesome. Like, I'm, Awesome. We, we definitely wanted to give you a different experience because I'm sure there are some questions that you're probably, if I get asked this one more time, I'm going to lose it. So it was like, no, okay, I, I know I just, I, I'm, I'm roll with the punches. I, okay. I, I usually just shift the answer into a realm. I'm working. We also have a whole Star Trek section at the bottom of the document. We're referencing. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> get there when we I'm get not, there. I'm not pushing you. I'm, I'm happy to shoot the shit about anything under the sun. Oh, I, we I, love it. Oh, um, let's transition. Clearly, you have no Republican listeners, or if you did, you do not anymore. <laughs> I think we lost them all. Yeah, They're gone. Say. There were two of them. They left. We, I know. we partnered with an organization called Trek the Vote back in October. It's different than the Biden victory. Yeah, coalition. I did that. I did that. Um, and uh, yeah, so we know one of the uh, people who sponsored that. We partnered with them, and um, it, it was supposed to be this like, partisan neutral organization just get out and vote get out and vote get out and protect people vote. wink wink yeah and and i mean we did a i, I did an interview with tay phoenix that's the person yeah, yeah. Uh, the contact i did an interview with her directly and um yeah that the, definitely not a red bone in either of our bodies I grew up, I'm 60. I remember Jacob Javits and Nelson Rockefeller and, uh, you know, a whole cadre. Lowell Weicker was my senator from Connecticut. There was once upon a time a strain of moderate Northeastern, maybe even by our contemporary standards, liberal Republican senators, just as there were, you know, like... like yeah. I mean, that's the thing that I think, unfortunately, we've lost is that there were within a party, there was such a, a wide range of political expression that a party could not go to an extreme. It had to keep a bigger tent by definition. Um, now, obviously, I'm talking about the Republican Party. I think the Democratic Party has, has, if nothing else, by sheer dint of the fact that it's now become the catch-all for almost everybody who's not a lunatic. 
<laughs> it, it, it reminds yeah. me of that line from that other franchise the the more you crush your fist or whatever he says the or she says the the more, the more you, you tighten your fist i see steve schmidt actually now has has uh, has become a democrat did you see that today yeah i did yeah, but it's, like, it's he, just what's happening they're they're catering to their fringe constituents and the sensible people among them are going uh fuck that yeah, and in catering to their French constituents, they're making it impossible for them to win elections, so they have to cheat. Right, right. That's they what have I was going to say. Again. And, and then complain when the cheating doesn't work. Yeah, and so they they have become by you know their only way to survive is like Mike Lee. Did he you see the senator from Utah who effectively said that you know oh democracy that's not the most important thing. No, no, prosperity is much more important than democracy. It's like amazing. Um, get out! Just yeah. get yeah. the fuck out. Like yeah. the guy at Nestle who said, water's not a right. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I got to tell you this, because I'm, I'm sorry, Dad, go ahead. I think Renzo had something he wanted sure, to yeah, say Renzo. earlier. Just a quick thing. So one of those people that like used to be under modern circumstances would definitely not be Republican, but Eisenhower's platform is mm. much more liberal yes. than anything running right now. Yeah. Right? The 1951 platform. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, wasn't that before the party far- switch? It, it, it doesn't even matter. It was before the flip. But he was still seen as the more republic or the more conservative of the two he was running that right. year. And that was in 52, right? Yeah. When that was a big deal. Yeah. So uh, he yeah, was running absolutely. against Truman. Right. right. The, the, actually, there the, I read fairly recently in something that, that for a period of time it, into the 50s, people when polled could not actually define the difference between the Republican and the Democratic parties. Hmm. Oh, so the, there was a period of time, and, and and it was really it was a function of the fact that after FDR and after the New Deal, the Republican Party effectively had to, particularly I think it reached its apotheosis under Eisenhower. They really had to embrace uh, the concept of a Keynesian world and a and a, a you know a. a a modern industrial economy in which labor and management coalesced and worked together. When it came down to brass tacks, Republicans and Democrats basically believed the same fucking shit. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. there was uh, this year, these last few years. Well, especially this election, the parties have become so polarized that I can't recall anytime and it's not like i've been around a while i'm I'm 43 but i can tell you that this is one of those things that people were questioning their families their friendships their their neighbors everything that you wouldn't have done maybe in the past and there's a neighbor of ours and the neighborhood i live in now is the one i grew up in so uh, and there, there's not a lot of turnaround in, in families in this neighborhood. So basically, there's a lot of people that are uh, the first or maybe second homeowners since the 60s. Mm. So there's a neighbor of ours who's been around since the subdivision was created. <laughs> Nicest people. Great. I went to school with um, uh, their youngest son, uh, graduated together in their house. Just the nicest people, not a bad bone in their body. So one day I'm going out uh, on a walk with, with my kids. We're going to go to the park and they had a Trump sign in their yard. And that kind of, like I, I stopped and my first reaction was, okay, well, not talking to them anymore. You know, that, that's, uh, and it, it was odd because, yeah, my dad basically said, oh, well, that's it for them. I'm like, but dad, you've known them for a hundred years. I mean, one sign in the yard 
but it really makes you think. And it's, it's kind of like, I felt conflicted. Like, okay, do I still wave to them out when we're outside? It's a bitch. It's a bitch. You know, I mean, what, you know, what do I do? What do you do? Cause it's, I mean, it's 74 million people. I mean, yeah. and I don't think that 74 million Americans are assholes. I think they can't be. This is what I honestly think is that, mm-hmm. and I think most, most, uh, historians would would agree with this that that a relatively small slice of america is extremely political mm-hmm. the great vast majority of americans really reject politics they wish it didn't exist they view it as fundamentally problematic and so they do not know very much about policy issues they do not know a lot about how the political system works. They're responding purely emotively from election to election on the basis of, of, of what feels right. And mm-hmm. people are going to be extremely swayable on emotional terms if they aren't particularly keyed in to the intricacies of policy and politics. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that uh, America is all human beings are susceptible to get to demagogues. Most people don't know that much about bupkis. Yeah, they live in their lives. You know, it's like, what do I need? What do I need to know to go about my day? I need to know how to do my job. I need to know how to take care of my kids. I need to know, you know, what I need to do to make sure that my household doesn't fall around me. Mm-hmm. I have to repair the roof today. Yada yada. How do I pay this bill? They don't know fucking bullshit. About, you know, medical plans and single payer and yada, yada, yada. And what do they hear? Blah, 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 blah. Somebody comes on the scene that kind of like stirs them by getting them on an emotional level. It's like, you know what they hear? I'll tell you, I'll tell you what they hear. They hear my taxes are going to go up so that this guy over here can have health care. No, no, I, I, it's, it's about me. Yeah. Unless this happens, what they're not hearing is somebody else's taxes are going up so I can have health care. <laughs> right, right. No, it's, it's not. It's, it's all about we're not we don't want to yeah. benefit someone else, even if it's to our detriment. And that's how it takes us back to the education. I think that we are trying to keep people dumber coming out of school so that they don't know any better. But I, this is where I get, I get kind of like, you know, I, I scratch my head all the time. It's like, is this historically anomalous or is just, is this how it's always been? Mm. I mean, it, it, you go back and you look at, at what was our most, you know, perhaps successful period of American history. And you could argue that it was, you know, Roosevelt's New Deal into the, into the 40s and into the 50s. But that was predicated on a, on a, on a partnership between the Deep South and the Progressive North. And we made this devil's compact. Hey, South, we'll electrify you. We'll build dams for you. We'll show you our, uh, you know, our our milk teat, and we'll help build you up. Mm-hmm. In return, you vote for our legislation, and we will not stop you from lynching black people. Right. That wow. was the compact in our country. Wow. Yeah. So when we talk about you know this you know horror that is America these days. There's all that shit show has been with us for for you know from the from the get go. Even mm-hmm. at our best, we've been at our worst. Yes, and that's what Lyndon Johnson said in the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. He said, "I have given the Republican Party power for a couple of generations because I have broken the Devil's Compact." Oh, wow! That's that's the kind of thing that just rocks you and changes how you think. Yeah, yeah. I like that. 
Eleanor Roosevelt was like always with Franklin. It was like, what the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? Why don't you speak up? Why don't you say something about the anti-lynching legislation that you're letting the South kill in the, in the Senate? And Roosevelt said, I can either get something done, and the cost of that is going to be the black man will suffer, or I can object and I will lose my presidency, and the black oh. man will suffer. And it's one thing for a New, New England progressive to say, well, then I guess you have no choice. It's another thing for a black man to say, that's the fucking choice? <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. I, I totally get that. I, I do. You know? I mean, that's that's it, that's it's hard, hard to think of it that way, but you're right. Politics is full of Faustian bargains, right? Like that's kind yeah. of the choices we're stuck with sometimes. Yeah. And for a white guy, that Faustian bargain say. is an intellectual exercise. Right. It's like, well, I'm making a Faustian bargain. It's like, no, you're not. You're making you're not making a Faustian bargain. You're not giving up shit. <laughs> yeah. Reminds me of a line from a uh, from a Metallica song. Wash your back so you don't stab mine. May I transition us into a less dark topic? Oh, <laughs> yes, pull us out of the darkness. Excellent. Um, Good luck. Nobody's listening now. You <laughs> I know, right? Lost. Everyone's like, like uh... three guys, and it's you <laughs> listening to this podcast. At First, you killed Enterprise. Now you killed yeah, the Trek podcast. Uh... If you're going to talk about, I told you to start with the frivolous shit. You didn't. <laughs> That's uh, fine. It's if you fine. want to move to frivolous shit, just air it backwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Edit in reverse. Um, John, we questions just for you and how you got into the industry. Um, Renzo, I believe you could kick us off. Yeah, so I did some digging on you and it sounds like you originally wanted to be a writer. Like you had more intentioned on being behind the scenes, either writing scripts or writing books and you're such a huge reader, wouldn't it surprise me if you did both? So what led to you actually getting stuck in front of the camera, though we know you love doing it? How did you get there? Um, well, I, 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 when I went to college, which I didn't want to do, I just wanted to be a, I wanted to be a bum, and my parents would have none of it. Um, <laughs> they insisted I go to college. So I only applied to girls' schools, and I got into Bennington uh, College, which uh, had a great lit department, although what appealed to me at the time was the female-to-male ratio. I had not factored in homosexuality. There were more gay guys than I anticipated. And I was, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> so the, the ratio was somewhat skewed, but I digress. I, uh, I had the, the uh, good fortune and the misfortune <clears throat> to study with some of the world's great writers, including Bernard Malamud. And um, good fortune in that, oh my God, what a great opportunity to study with Bernard Malamud. Misfortune because at 19 years old, it's like, I, I, you know, it's like if they'd thrown me into an acting class with Olivier, I wouldn't have become an actor. <laughs> have, ha having learned the difference at an early age between what it means to take writing very seriously yeah. and being like, you know, like, ah, <laughs> this is funny, uh, I, I, I fled. And I fled to the acting department. I'd always been an actor. And we had a wonderful acting department, but it didn't quite strike me as, uh, you know, um, as, as much of a gulf between what was achievable and my level of talent. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of what got me started uh, as, as somebody who had more professional aspirations in that direction than in writing. I was, I was on the fence between both of them growing up because I was a big reader, loved to write, loved to read, loved to act, you know. I wouldn't say I love to write. I did write a lot, but okay. uh, I, acting, it's also social. It's like, you're not going to get laid as a writer. You're at a carol, you know, <laughs> writing. Actors get to go out and have drinks with the the, yeah. the, 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 the pretty gals in the casting. Mm -hmm. So that was a no brainer. 
I mean, you could have been an Ernest Hemingway. I'm certain he got laid all over. Well, I, I knew instinctively I was not going to be an Ernest Hemingway. I was like, I, I didn't want to be a Truman Capote, but I knew right. I wasn't going to be an Ernest Hemingway. That's a very high bar. The writers would have a much higher bar for that it's than true. actors. Much not everybody can write a book about talking at your own hand. Yeah. <laughs> no, and 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 you know, I I think I think uh, it now, I mean, you know, it's always that that silly game where you kind of think if you could do your life over. Yeah, probably if push comes to shove, my 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 greatest if I had had worked to my greatest potential, I, I probably should have been a writer. Okay. Um, but 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 I I was I, one I was social, uh, two I was lazy. And it's a lot. It's a lot harder to discipline yourself when nobody else is cracking the whip to sit down and write every day. If you're mm-hmm. an actor, you have no choice. You got to go to rehearsal. Yeah, you know. So the enforced discipline made a big difference. Um, right on. Um, one of our co-hosts was unable to make it. Um, she had some questions here that I'm going to just throw out there. Um, first of all, we we, we want to brag about this. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but there's a role-playing game for Star Trek called Star Trek Adventures. And every every Tuesday night, me and our co-host Watney, we do a Twitch stream with some other players. And I don't we know just what the stream is, but that sounds very good. It's, it's like a live stream. It's just, you know, people playing games live. Okay. And um, we, we play in the Star Trek universe. And um, in one of the games we played, she was inspired by your performance to play a Denobulin. Well pronounced. And uh, her Denobulin was a doctor named Alel and got us out of a bunch of jams. But she was inspired to be in that role because she likes playing doctors. She's played doctors in some of our other role mm-hmm. plays. Um, so her question is, you know, speaking of being drawn to roles, uh, you have a tendency to play doctors out of time, True Blood, Angel, Stargate SG-1, the aforementioned West Wing, um, Masters of Sex, Twin Peaks. Um, no, it's now. Are, are, well, she wrote it all down for me. Thank you. Well, I'm not going to play sumo wrestlers. Um, <laughs> it's a process of elimination. Think of all the um, things you're not going to cast me as. There's not much left other than Brainiacs. Um, she's she yes she's like she gets the this is a self-inflicted typecast of sorts it's, um, yeah. and ironically in scrubs you played a patient instead of a doctor right. a drunk um but uh wh- what it, what it, what attracts you to these types of characters and what informs those characters completely random cool. the, the the only thing i would say is two things that operate one is your cast largely based on your physical type i am i, I am nobody's hulk Nobody right, right. is going to cast me on the basis of, oh, that guy projects power. He's scary, right. purely because of his physicality. I'm not going to play the senator. I'm not going to play the bodyguard. I'm not going to play any kind of version of a tough guy. What they're going to cast me for is verbal facility. So mm-hmm. I'm going to play intellectuals. I'm going to play doctors. I'm going to play brainiacs. I'm going to play guys who can, you know, yabber, yabber. Mm-hmm. And, and in television, umpteen percent of the guys they think are brainiacs have a have a have a doctor or a phd next to their names so it's no you know it is no penchant of mine or no particular like you know ooh, i really want to express my deepest self by playing doctors because i always wanted to be a doctor nothing to do with it totally random do you kind of just go with that then i, I know typecasting is kind of frowned upon but do you find yourself 
on the side of, well, I can either be typecast or I can be stubborn and try to fight that and play roles that really aren't me just to make a point. Or is it, if you want as an actor, and it was a decision I had to make, if you want as an actor to elbow out more roles for yourself, then you have to one, you have to be in really good physical shape. And I'm not, and I never had any particular interest. I'm afraid because I'm a lazy sucker. <laughs> and doing the things that are required. It's like, you got to go to the gym for hours every day. If I wanted to pitch myself for other kinds of roles, I could have gotten a hair weave. I could have capped my teeth. I could have lifts in my shoes. I could have lost 40 pounds. I could go into a room and compete for the guy who's the head of a law firm. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to get that part. I'll audition for it. And, and, and I'll do a good audition because at the end of the day, I think a lot of Hollywood's... Um, unfortunate but understandable pension to cast on the basis of an immediate physical mm -hmm. you know, an yep. immediate visual hit is is bullshit i mean to me every character is first and foremost a person and a complicated person who's trying to play an action in a scene who's trying to achieve something achieve a goal i i look at a part and think of it in active terms what's this guy fighting for what are the circumstances that dictate his approach to going after what he's going after, what's the backstory that supports that? And, and I don't think twice about what the fuck the guy looks like because it's out of my control. Right, right. That's not how Hollywood works. That's why every woman over the age of 40 has to get, you know, like bajillion dollars worth of fucking plastic surgery. <laughs> it's That's ironic terrible. being an actor because I, I have, I'm probably, you would probably not meet a lot of people who give a flying fuck I'm not phrasing this correct. I don't give a flying fuck about what I look like or right. what people look like. Physical appearance means nothing to me. I don't care about clothing. I don't care about cars. I don't care about any of that shit. I don't care about it. You're comfortable and, in your own skin. And yet I am an actor and an actor has to be obsessed with physical appearance or at least extremely cognizant mm -hmm. of what his physical appearance means. I didn't want to go back into the darkness. <laughs> I, I made a nice living at something that I, I love the work. I really like the work. I like to figure out how to make a scene work. I like the acting challenge. But the industry itself and what the industry, I think, kind of in a weird way stands for is sort of anathema, anathema to me. Mm -hmm. I just, well, I, you can't, but you can't make a living in a theater. Right. Well, isn't your physical appearance also something that's probably written into your, your contract for a show? Because... <laughs> I, I've had this, there's a, there's a friend of mine, a friend of mine, Ben, who uh, is an actor out in Hollywood. And I've talked to him about this before. And he said, if, if you're on a show, you do say you grow a beard or you have one or, or whatever, you know, you can't change your physical appearance without, I guess, jumping through some hoop. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, you can't, yeah, no, you're not, you're not going to be able to show up one day on the set with a beard. It's like, no, the character doesn't have a beard. You're not going right. to be able to, you have, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to go and have a haircut because you feel like you have shorter hair, but what is not going to be in my contract is you have to stay at 180 pounds of beefcake, John. <laughs> you could have been now, Chris Evans. Be. You could have been Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. No, if, if that was in my contract, I would just show up with 180 pounds of ground beef and be like, fuck off. <laughs> well, when, when well, LeVar Burton... I, I watch the paycheck, though, you understand. That's not yeah. Right, yeah. Having well, made guys... the decision to get into this field, I just as soon get paid. <laughs> well, LeVar Burton had to ask uh, to grow a goatee for his... He wanted a goatee for his wedding. So during TNG, if you remember, there was an episode, one episode that Jordy had 
this this goatee mm -hmm. and had, had asked for that. Uh, Jonathan Frakes shows up between oh. season, just some some random like I've got a beard and I'm just here for rehearsals. I'm going to shave it later. And they told him, no, you're keeping that. So oh, I had to keep interesting. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean it. It generally speaking, you know, once they once they buy it, they own you. So they can, you know, they can they can like in that, for instance, say, you know, oh, well, we wouldn't have thought about this, but that beard's great, keep it. If they didn't like it, it'd be like, no, shave that. Uh, right, now you gotta keep it. Uh, hopefully you, you like it because- Yes, exactly, exactly. exactly. That's why I would never show up with a beard. Right. Did beard you have any trouble with that? Yeah. Did you have any trouble with that? Something that you wanted to do or were considering doing, but just got poo-pooed by the, no? Okay. No, I mean, I, I would, you know, Bob Picardo famously, of course, as you know, you know, would go in like, you know, every Tuesday and he would pitch, he would pitch, he's an opera singer, yeah, yeah, and Bob is great and brilliant and relentless. So eventually they, he wore them the fuck down and they just let him do whatever he wanted. I am far too lazy for that. If I bumped into Brandon at Crafty one day, I'd say, hey, Brandon, I got this great idea. I lost like 20 pounds, which I did in like season three. How about we give Dr. Flox a tapeworm and they have to pull it out of his ass and they throw it out the porthole and it wraps around the ship. How about that? I read that. <laughs> um, you know, they use that in the opening scenes for the new for a new Star Trek show, right? Lower Decks. They essentially have a tapeworm attached to the ship from the outside in one of the, yeah, in the opening yeah. credits for it. There you yeah. go. I didn't get credit. No, it's like when Dr. Flox, when he went into a hibernation, yeah, I, mean, yes, yes. I, I would take credit for a bunch of things that I just sit around the crafty table that I think maybe um, people want. There's, oh, okay. there's a great scene in Enterprise where Dr. Flox is just nonchalantly taking care of sickbay naked. Yes. Now, well, here's the story behind that is that at a party, I can't remember the, na the, na the name of the guy. Why does it all have to start with it happened at a party? <laughs> find, find, find on your magic, magical like computery type device the name of the guy who wrote that episode. Chris Black. Chris Black. Chris Black, a dear friend of mine. I don't know if he wrote the episode, but he was in on this. Uh, I love Chris Black. He's a great guy. He wrote, I think, in the first season, maybe the first two seasons. But uh, It was a night in sick bay, right? Uh, no, this was in the third season in the, when we were, uh, uh, everybody on this ship was in hibernation and I was running the ship all by myself. Oh, that's right. Sorry. Not a night in sick bay. Okay. And I was walking around naked and this happened because Chris Black at a party, I was like making fun of Jolene and Trip. It was like, how come you got everybody in the fucking show running around in their underpants and me, uh, it's like, I'm always in pajamas. Why don't you, why don't you show my body off? Come on, flaunt it, baby. You got it. And he said, you wouldn't do it. And I said, take all my clothes off, baby. You sh I'll show you. <laughs> so some years later, this episode comes up. Were you bluffing and he took it? I was totally was not great. bluffing. No, oh, I, I, I was totally not bluffing. But I said, I think I should walk in the door of sick bay, and I should turn sharply to the left and all the way across the room, a flower pot should hit the ground. <laughs> And, and well, we didn't expect looked, this they, kind of big dick energy on Beyond yeah. Trek, but here and we they are. Kinda, they kind of looked at me for a second like they didn't understand it, and then they went, oh, oh, no. <laughs> He's an alien, on. right? Have you, you seen his of... tongue? Have you seen his tongue? Have yes. Oh, yes. So other <laughs> shows got away with stuff that's pretty similar to that, right? Like Babylon 5 had a character with like six tentacles that were essentially his organs for that and he uses them to like cheat at cards like he uses them prehensilely yes. right yeah i think that i think uh, 
I think uh, um, 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 what's the show? Uh, my face is in in back of you. What's the show? Is it Orville? Orville. Orville. Yeah. Orville. Yeah. Yeah. I think the you know the Orville. I think is trying was trying oh, yeah. to. That's that's gone now, isn't it? To get rid no, of it's it? got a third season coming up on. Oh, Hulu. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think they're trying to walk that line where it's like you know they they have they have uh, enough lowbrow to. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they don't have the stick up their ass that Star Trek tends to have. Yes. Well, that's because uh, Seth MacFarlane is is running it. I mean, and he's not the kind of he's not a stick up your ass kind of he's pretty guy. irreverent. Right. Although it's very it's very interesting in in a weird way because I mean, as opposed to say what Discovery is doing or what Picard is doing, where they're trying to kind of like rough up Star Trek. I mean, what mm-hmm. Seth is doing is really kind of like doing you know your daddy's Star Trek, but yeah. with fart jokes. Yeah. Yeah. And, Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. I, some people dig it, and some people think it's like, "What the fuck?" Uh, <laughs> well, it really hits a lot of beats of TNG. There are a lot of uh, uh, and look at who's writing for it. I mean, Brandon's writing for it, and and Andre yep. right. for it. Some of the issues they tackle reminded yes. me of Next Generation. Yes, it's 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 much. It's very much in line, I think, with what Star Trek does both both well and sometimes mm-hmm. kind of like you know. In a, in a modeling way it's like right. you know let's advance the social issue du jour and make the episode about it and sometimes it hits and sometimes it feels like it's a little you know wham wham yeah. yeah i think sometimes it's actually unfair gonna... to call it a parody of star trek i think it's really an homage to star trek the mm-hmm. orville as a hoe or as yeah, a whole it is it's, it's, an, it's an homage with with a with with fart jokes uh, I, right. I, you know fart jokes and blue guys who ejaculate out their eyeballs Oh yes. God! <laughs> you, I almost had that out of my memory, but yeah. I mean, I what, the, it was you. odd in that the episode I was on had had the the B story, which I think was Jason Alexander was was uh, the uh, kind of uh, uh, sub the replacement for the security officer who had like some of his uh, not excretory organs, but his uh, yes his, ingested on the outside of his body. Yes, mm-hmm. and, and that was kind of like. My story was completely old school, like Star Trek without any jokes at all. It was like, I'm on the Orville and I don't get a fucking joke. I know, right? <laughs> uh, sorry, Dag, you muted. Yeah, it's tradition. Oh, yeah. Seth, if you're watching this, we, we've got, you know, Seth, things to Seth, do. If you're watching this, Seth supposedly does a brilliant Dr. Flox impersonation. Oh. oh, and I could never, I couldn't get him to do it for me. What? Really? All right. Yeah. He's no, probably he, he did not. It. By the way, this this gets me. He did not like cast me because it was like, oh, this is cool. We got Bob Picardo, and now let's get John Billingsley. Uh, you know, whose whose character I can impersonate to be on the show. Oh no, I just got randomly called in to fucking audition. <laughs> and I got the part, but it was like I, Seth. Uh, I know, right? The phone works. Come on. Yep. All right. Yeah. If you're listening or watching, and he's not watching, if he and Marina Sirtis are watching this together, I called her a has been, and I'm calling you out, Seth, for not having the guts to do your fucking Doctor Flox impersonation on the set when I was. And and that's what I want to address. If if the regular audience is listening or watching this, and you're social media savvy, head over to whatever you want to use and make the 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 hashtag trend uh, flocks Seth and, and let it go and let's get Seth McFarland to yeah. do that impression. Film it, post film it, it publicly. Film it, McFarland. Uh, there's nothing happening, it's COVID, so just do it. Yeah. Right, you've got nothing else to do, right? <laughs> yeah, come on, I only have 12,500 followers. I need some more fucking followers. <laughs> um, 
so uh yeah we're diving into enterprise now we're there Okay. We're there. Okay. Um, there's there's not a ton, but all right. So Linda's secret vices. Uh-oh. Did anybody? Oh, I asked that. What That's... were Linda's secret vices? Yeah, she didn't have any. Okay. Aww. She what seems so. Yeah. She seems very straight laced on on every interview I've seen of her. She seems I, really. That was years. I'm sure she's got vices now, but okay. she didn't at the time. If she had vices, they were really really secret. So. I'm, I'm sorry, Dag. Okay, um, I was just going to ask. So this was earlier. Why do you feel that the second season episode regeneration was, in your opinion, the one that you felt killed the show? I'm being somewhat facetious. I think there were a lot of episodes in the second season that people kind of went. Ugh. I think mm-hmm. there were certain people who felt like bringing the board back smacked of jumping the shark. Uh, given you know, and I'm I'm not I'm not a Star Trek purist, so don't 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 confuse me with don't shoot the messenger. I think there were people who felt like you're making a hash of a timeline. It's a desperate attempt to try and juice the show by bringing back the uber villain, even though it doesn't really fit into this world. Mm-hmm. Y- you don't really own what the board mean by you know one letting the doctor actually unborgify unborgify himself, and nobody else could fucking do it. Right, yeah. and letting them get away and. And, and frankly, letting us, def- you know, if not defeat them, at, less, at least basically, you know, e- evading them as easily as we did. Let you survive. Yeah. Right. It, it, it's like, it was like Borg light to a certain yes. in, in certain people's eyes. And I love that episode. I'm just going to re-say that. I thought it was fun, too. I, 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 I'm, only, I'm only articulating what some right, people right. Well, and mm-hmm. some people have been thinking like that since it's like Trump. came out. Some people say. You know, yeah, people no. say that I have, I have, I have images of magazines on my phone that I like to post when people are like, "Star Trek Discovery is ruining Star Trek," and I'm like, "Here's an article from 1986. Star Trek: The Next Generation is gonna ruin Star Trek." Yes, it's like they've been there forever. The haters will always be there. By the Fuck way, I changed, my, I changed my background. Look at how Byronic I looked when I was a young child. Oh, wow. Wouldn't, wouldn't you want to tap that? I, <laughs> I, I, that's why you could have been a Chris Evans or a Chris Hemsworth. I know. You could have I been know. It's yeah. like at the time, I thought I was like this ugly, pimply, like, you no, know. No, that's a handsome guy right there. I know. Yeah. And I look at my picture now and it's like, oh, if only I'd known what a, what a, what a cash I was. <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you for sharing that photo with us. Youth is wasted on the young. Uh, Manny, Manny Cotto. So is it Cotto? I, is it Cotto or Cotta? I'm not it's, sure. It's C-O-T-O, and I've perhaps been mispronouncing his name for years. I always pronounced it Cotto, but maybe it's Cotto. You might be right. It, I, it may be. Manny, met all the Manny. I figured I can't go wrong. How else could you pronounce Manny? So Manny. It, it could be my Midwestern accent. You know, let's we say things differently. Him, let's just call him Manny. Manny. Uh, I always felt that it, when he came into season three, yep. that a lot of people did not like that whole season storyline. Me personally, I thought it was fine. And then the fourth season really picked up steam and he had these, these stories that really started going back and connecting some things uh, like the, the whole Klingon look. The 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 perversity of season three, before we talk about season four, the Mm -hmm. perversity of season three is that while I did not like the socio-political context, the Zindi and what it signified about, Mm -hmm. you know, our, our bloodlust and our need for vengeance, blah, 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 blah. But what I think it did in individual episodes was it created a tension that was sorely lacking in the show. Mm-hmm. As, an, as, as an example, there was an episode called Similitude, 
where yes. we cloned yes. trips. Yeah. Yes. That yep. was amazing. Yep. The urgency of having to make the decision as to whether we should clone them and then kill the clone was predicated on we have this bigger mission. Right. In, th in that sense, what season three did that was necessary was it, 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 it created a ticking clock. Even when I thought the Zindi arc itself was problematic, I thought the ticking clock was smart. There was. There was always there was a ticking clock the entire time. And I don't think it fit that they made the opening theme song more upbeat um, at the start of probably, you know, one of the darker the darkest seasons. season. Yeah. yeah, the darkest season here. Let's make this opening theme song more upbeat. But so what I was going <clears throat> what I was going to just be uh, glad we didn't have a boy band, baby. Oh my God, yes. That's well, such a good long way. Oh, I'm going to have nightmares about oh, that. Got us started. <laughs> so, but, but you're right. I, I think that had they not dicked around with the the schedule, how they were airing, because I, I remember that it was almost impossible to keep up with Enterprise because it was this football game or that sport or whatever. It was preempted here, pulled there. And it really seemed like by the time. We were on we were on Death Watch. The only reason we got renewed for a third, much less a fourth season, is because they weren't ready to kill UPN, and uh -huh. and they needed content, and nobody else wanted to produce a show for UPN, so they had no choice. They had to keep it going as long as they could. Well, yeah, it seemed I mean, like just as it was starting to turn the corner, the fans had already left. It was too late. The viewers yeah. were gone. Well, yeah, I, exactly right. I mean, that's exactly right. It's like by by the time we got to the midpoint of season two. The fan, and that's and that's why I make jokes about season two. It's really the season that killed us. Whether it was a particular episode, I think the one that really plummeted the ratings most was the one with Padma Lakshi, and I she was a lovely woman. I, she was very sweet. That was not that was not our finest hour. What was that one? That was the episode where she's like an alien princess and she's stuck up and snooty and you know. It was oh God, yes, yep. So it was just it was it was just you know it's like we've been there before, and you know Trip is like the. The country boy who, you know, like, well, what the hell's wrong with you, lady? And, dude, yeah, who are you, you Rufus McDougal? Oh, heavens. It's very they, much like the original series episode, Alan of Troyes, where yeah, Troyes yeah. comes aboard yeah. and just is like, I'm snooty. And Kirk is like, well, not on my ship. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah well, and, even with the, uh, the three main characters, they tried to clone TOS. So you've got Captain Archer, it's like your... Your, your brash knuckle dusting captain you've got the uh, cold vulcan character to be like spock and then hey we need a guy with a southern accent because dr mccoy kind of had that so <clears throat> yeah and and you know i i adore jolene and i think she did a lovely job in a lot of ways but i think unfortunately what they didn't do was figure out how to how to uh, push her and encourage her to bring some of the warmth mm -hmm. that leonard nimoy brought to to spock mm -hmm. To, to Paul and I, I, I don't say this in a pejorative way because you know I think she did a great job. It, it's, it's written the way it's written. Yes. You, you as an actor, it's not your gig to to kind of say I'm going to impose values that you're not asking me to to, to play. If you have a window to kind mm -hmm. of push out certain things, you know, value wise, that you think you know, great, I'm going to take this opportunity. Go for right. it. I don't think they gave Jolene a lot of opportunity to humanize. Which is gotcha. why I think for, for a lot of fans, I think the whole, I know, frankly, I think, I think Connor felt this. I think the whole gag when they had a romance, I think, I think a lot of people went like, what? Because it wasn't, it wasn't really justified. It that felt very sense. pushed.
and here's where Watney, our missing co-host, would get real into it. She hates every yeah. romance that's happened in Star Trek. She thinks they're all terrible. They're all forced. So she definitely well, thinks that about yeah. Paul. And, and they are. And it's how it's how the you know, unfortunately, it's how the it's how the sausage is made. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> it's yeah. It, there's a studio, and they're they're a network. They're network guys, and and they're watching the ratings, and they're saying we need more sex. You know what? Mm-hmm. Seven to nine. We need another hot lady in a cat suit. Come on. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's why you got your awesome decontamination chamber where everybody ran around in their underwear. With the blue goo. Yeah. Well, you know, Jerry Ryan, there were times she literally passed out on set because yeah. the suit she wore, wore was so tight. Yep. It, it would cut off her. Yeah. Well, and or whatever. No, and it's no, you know, not telling tales out of school that Kate, you know, Mulgrew was pretty fucking pissed off. That it's like, you know, yeah. it felt like pandering. Jerry did a great job. I mean, I'm not a big, I'm not a big student of Star Trek. I hadn't seen a shitload of Star Trek. So, so I, I, I have been in the world now for 20 whatever years. So I know a lot of the stories. But the story, of course, is that is that you know she was not too happy that that decision was made, and she and Jerry consequently had you know had the problems. Yeah, they did. Well, not Jerry's fault, not and in a weird way, not not you know Kate's fault. It's I get the it. producer's fault. And since, in, since then, they've and, essentially and the bonded net, over. And it's not the producers; yeah. it's the network. It's yes. not the producers; it's the network. Right. The network says this is what I need, and this is when I need it by. You know. I think they're going for a demographic that maybe wasn't there because Voyager and the, that second half of Voyager. Well, I hey, go back to the original series. I mean, what were all the girls running around in like, you know, skirts? Yep. Right? Mini skirts. You know, yeah. Um, can I say pussies? I can say pussies. Can uh, I? Well, we've gone this far. I mean, that, that's, that's tame now. I, to, I, to I know, I know. But that word, that, word, that word sort of like oh. in the form of misogyny that I, it's like I was doing so well. It was just purely mm. lefty without, you know, moving into political incorrectness. And then I used the word pussy. Our last, our last listener is now gone. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. We've got an Irish listener. We haven't said. Oh, the yeah. He's back. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> oh, let's uh, not. Yeah. Let's not do that. Yeah, one no, there. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are not in the correct country for that one. Um, I know. And I that gotta, word, having been in London for years, they use that word like, you know, like everything. It's a compliment. Yeah, it's just, it's how we use fuck. Yeah. And, yeah. and hence, Dominic Keating still tops me as being the most profane. Wow. We need to get him on the is, show then. Yeah, we need to get <laughs> Dominic. Well, that's his, if you really, if you get him liquored up, that's his word. Okay. Oh, okay. Prerequisite. um i have a question that starts at enterprise but can go into a more general place watney um says that you once said that dr flocks and yourself had similar buoyant attitudes about life how has that buoyancy served you elsewhere in your career well i think for one thing there's no way that you can be an actor without having a lot of bounce back ability it's just rejection 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 i mean you audition a bazillion times to get a single job so uh whether it's buoyancy or resiliency um i think some of what you have to have temperamentally as an actor is uh the ability to take a punch um i i i I guess if there's something else for me that buoyancy means, it's that, you know, you, you, you just can't lose your sense of humor. You just can't, you know, I mean, there's so much that's painful in this world. There's so much that's painful in a human life, so much loss and so much suffering that if you let yourself, you know, sink into a slew of despond, I think you're, Mm -hmm. you know, you're, 
And, and I never wanted to be that. So for me, buoyancy is just, it's a choice. I, I, I'm an existentialist. You know, I believe that, you know, to the extent that you have choices in your life, the, the biggest choice you have to make, which is what, the, what Sartre used to talk about, is your attitude. No, you're in prison. You don't get a choice. You're in prison, motherfucker. You're mm-hmm. in prison. Now, choose how you want to be in prison. Uh, and if anybody's ever read Orange is a New Black. Uh, yeah. The book, I watched it. Oh, the book is, book. The the book is way better. Oh, I didn't the, know. the book and the series are very different. Yeah. To me, what was interesting about the book is that, is that she was basically told early on, before she went into prison, don't make friends. And instead, what she did was she went to prison and she said, I'm making friends. Mm-hmm. And to me, that book it was such a beautiful illustration of what the existentialist choice is. You know? It, it was. Yeah, great show. I mean, I... Love that show. show, but I, 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 she's not the greatest writer in the world. But in terms of the message, I just thought that mm-hmm. that book delivers so beautifully what to me is sort of like the life message is like, you know what, you're here. There's going to be fucking pain. There's going to be heartache. Mm-hmm. Get kicked in the teeth. Choose how you want to deal with it. Yeah. Choose. Yeah. yeah. I do have another question for you, but I definitely want to take turns, not occupy the the, the whole thing. So. Don't forget about me coming back around to me when you know, Renzo Dag. I did mine. Oh, you did. Okay. okay. So, <laughs> so yeah, my I question for you is this: There's been a lot of hubbub, I'll say, about Star Trek having been too woke in recent times, right? It's having gone too left and too progressive, trying to bring in trans characters, trying to bring in bi characters, lesbians, gays, etc. Trying to just mm-hmm. bring that into this franchise, right? And you see that Discovery's done it. You're even seeing it in, in Picard, which is a bit unexpected too, right? So what are some thoughts of yours towards the whole, like, is Star Trek getting too woke? I don't think you're going to think so, but I wanted to hear what you'd say on such a subject. Yeah, I, I, well, I, you know, and I, I, I can't, I, to be honest with you, although I've watched a few episodes of Discovery, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not up to date, and I've not watched any of Picard, and I've not watched any Below Decks, and I've watched a few of the Orvilles. So I'm no, I would not speak from a source of knowledge in terms of what, what you're saying is right, is true or not. But on th- in theory, the idea that a show that exists to push the boundaries in terms of what is acceptable and what is and what it should be like just part of our human condition, which mm-hmm. is, you know, everybody on the fucking ship, everybody on the fucking ship, as long as you're nice. To me, it's like you can't be too woke. Right. Uh, what well I would, said. Now, what I will say, is that I think where Star Trek sometimes gets cloying is when they start kind of like going, you know. Oh, yeah. You know. And I don't know if that's happening now, but I will say when you go back and you watch the original series and you watch certain Star Trek episodes, that to me has always been Star Trek's downfall. It's a thin line between being woke and being smug. Yes. Yeah, we're a perfect society. We're post scarcity. We're all this and that. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's the thing. Is that, I mean, I think one of the reasons that we're in a pickle, you know, politically, is because, mm-hmm. like it or not, and I'm, I'm, I'm one of the big offenders because I've got a big yap. But you know, nobody wants to feel like you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I think there are people who feel like they are are judged and belittled. Um, there are people who, you know, probably right 
they probably are being judged and belittled and whether or not they should be judged and belittled (laughs) is in a way neither here nor there. Nobody wants to be judged and belittled and they're going to get snarky with you if they feel like you're copping a tune towards them. Right, right. Yeah, those are fighting words there. It's a it's a hard fucking thing because it's like you know. I mean, you, you how do you say you know you're kind of a sexist or you're kind of a racist or you're kind of like you know an intentional dumbass? Get your head out of your ass and pay attention to the world. How do you say that without making people say "fuck you," Charlie? Right. It's I don't know how to do that. I mean, I don't, know, I don't, I don't, I don't know any of this. Now. I don't know how to do it either. I don't, you know, you learn how to take a punch. Uh, you right. don't go into you don't go into politics. Uh, yep, number one. <laughs> uh, Jay, did you have? <laughs> yes. So this was what I was curious about. So just with acting in general, and this is not so much enterprise, probably more enterprise than than anything else, because it was a four year long series that you did. But memorizing the lines, you were talking about memorizing the lines, walking, and I've always been fascinated with. So you're filming these episodes and at times I've read that um, if there's, if there's a scene that takes place in this spot and is in two episodes, say for example, in the sick bay, we'll go ahead we'll film each, um, each part of, of each episode right here while we're there. Now, I don't know that that happened on enterprise. I, I read that, there was a case a couple of times on TNG. I, I know that happened, mm-hmm. but so you're, you're filming out of sequence. You're, you're doing how many one, like uh, you're filming for one or two episodes per week. How do you even memorize your lines when you're, this is not a stage play. I mean, I've been in plays. It's you just, you're going linearly from beginning to end with your lines. You're not asked to start, Okay, we're doing scene five today. You know, you you rehearse on your own so that you know where each scene is 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 starting from in terms Mm -hmm. of an emotional place. I mean, so that if you're even if you're shooting it out of sequence, you know, if I'm shooting the last scene first, I have rehearsed the whole thing. So even though I'm shooting the last scene first, I know where I'm supposed to be by this scene. Okay. You know, I mean, you, you, you obviously, you know, things will surprise you along the way. It, it's, it's been likened, and I think this is fair, that, that uh, working on a part is a little bit like you're, you're trying to figure out within the, the banks of a waterway, you know, how mm-hmm. fast the water goes and how turgid the water can be. Mm-hmm. And whether it's wavy or whether it's placid, but you're always contained within the boundaries. Right. And in, that, in that sense... As long as you do your work on the script, even though from scene to scene, when you actually get it up on its feet, you may surprise yourself and you should surprise yourself with certain choices, you'll stay within the parameters. You'll stay within the boundaries. And so you can shoot it in any fucking order as long as you've rehearsed it. Right. And now do you have any prompts there on on stage or on the set? It's like, okay, well, wait a minute, what do I start well, with this Enterprise, they were, they were unusual. This happens every now and again. They didn't want you carrying, you know, you know what sides are? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sides, you know, they shrink down the scenes that they're shooting for the day and they make them small enough to stick in your pocket. Most shows have sides for the actor. Right. And a lot of actors, like, they're constantly, you know, they got their sides on them the whole time. Mm-hmm. They're working off their sides all day, particularly if you're number one or two on the call sheet and you've got a lot of words. Yeah. Enterprise didn't allow, didn't make sides, and they didn't allow scripts on stage. Oh. They really wanted you to be, like, perfect. 
So, and they were, they were persnickety about it. Famously, they are one of the most famous in, in, you know, television history for being like piss anti about, uh, you draw uh, West Wing, you mentioned Aaron Sorkin's another one. Yeah. It's like, you know, he wants it delivered as written. Right, right. Don't change any words. And, Don't and, do that. And on Star Trek, they would also have a pronunciation guide. So it's not just as written, but it's as the pronunciation guide dictates these alien words are pronounced. Denobulin, denobulin, denobulin. Or if it's just that. if it's just gibberish, if it's just like flegendar, you know, if you said flegendar, they would say no, it's flegendar. Are we sure we're not falling into Harry Potter here? <laughs> was that a spell you just cast in us? I, I felt really bad for Linda, who was the linguist who had to spout right. all Oh, that. wow. Oh, hmm. and, and, and I don't know how she fucking memorized that, because that, that was, you know, I think, I think notoriously on Star Trek, the engineers who've got to, like, you know, talk about... Techno-babble. Yeah, the techno-babble. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Linda is a linguist... I got off relatively light. For the most part, I had some medical terminology, but it usually was like, you know, I, the endocrine system is like, well, I can grapple with that. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah. rooted in real Latin, so you can pretty much steal that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, that shit can be hard. Um, the worst thing is when they, they, they rewrite on a dime. I mean, Deadwood, notoriously. David Milch was notorious for just scrapping a scene on the day giving it to his actors as if it's why jimmy smith's quit uh, uh, uh nypd blue it, oh. it's as if he expected his actors to be able to look at a scene and memorize it and just do it mm -hmm. um on deadwood he famously wrote a very long speech for the gentleman who played the uh, uh mayor whose name is escaping me wonderful guy uh uh you'll you'll know he, he's been around for he was on the old new heart show um anyway older guy writes this long speech this guy stays up all night long you know learning this like impossible monologue you get older it's harder and harder to learn this shit shows up that day first scene up milch shows up it's like eh, yeah eh, i didn't like that here hands him a fucking brand new material oh <laughs> um you know I, that's pretty hateful. And it's, it's a weird, I mean, there's like a mental block that some writers have. They don't understand what it is you have to do as an actor to get behind those words. Especially when they're not your own words. Memorizing your own words is so much easier. Yeah, James Woods, notoriously, a dick that he is. Um, uh, did I say child rapist? Uh, anyway, he... he um, <laughs> Amber Tamblin, I'm for you. Um, he supposedly is like, you know, uh, boom, uh, just picks it right off the page, wow. you know, and, and, and for people who have that gift, it's like, oh, you fuckers. <laughs> that eidetic memory for scripts. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah I wish not, I had that. Not me. Not fucking me. <laughs> All right, John. Oh. So I've got one last question for you. And then I think I've, I, are, you, are, you, are you, are you doing Star Trek? Uh, it's, I guess it's drifting out, right? Okay. It's drifting out into that other category we talked do about. The do, thing, have, do the thing. Do the sure? thing. I have one more Star Trek question. No, no, then you go ahead. You go oh, ahead. Okay. Um, John, some of my favorite moments are the candid moments with the Star Trek cast. Every once in a while, somebody posts a picture um, that's just taken where they're all at 
Patrick's house and and Scott's I've never cooking. been invited to Patrick's house. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Rocky Horror Show picture from your cast was pretty amazing. Oh, you shot was really you, awesome. I bet you haven't seen the picture when I won first prize in the costume contest, have you? You should send it to us. You should show. <laughs> but but my question my question is in Box those candid moments. <laughs> I can't wait for this. I good. won first prize. That's awesome. Um, the focus pulled, how, pulled him a leash. Let me tell you that. Oh my god. Oh. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm dead. He's dead. Uh, um, how often do you get to speak, hang out with, casually with your former Star Trek and a Well, you know, these days, of course, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Notwithstanding. Um, yeah. I mean, I love conventions. You know, I, 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 my, my wife and I both, my wife, uh, I'll segue, my wife, when she went to her first convention with me, you know, she, she was on Chuck. I don't know if you ever watched Chuck. She played the general on Chuck, Bonnie mm-hmm. Friedrichsi. So, she, she, you know, a little bit known herself in the genre world. And she, she was like, oh, conventions, really? I don't know. I don't know. So I got her to go to one, you know, one of the first ones we did. And she sat, she's at the very back row. And I was telling this long story about how, how, uh, how Jolene and Connor shared a car and Jolene gassed up the car and Connor was like, oh my God, oh my God, let me out. And my wife from the very back row was like, pot calling the kettle black, insinuating that I've been known to pass gas upon occasion. And from that moment on, she became my heckler in chief and eventually became the person who shared the stage with me. And we grew to develop this wonderful low vaudeville act that I kind of adore, where we run around and we have squirt guns and we shampoo people's hair and we just generally like fuck around. Yeah. Uh, And so I loved that shit and I would love going to conventions and that's where I got to hang out with the other actors. And I'm always happy to hang out with the people in our own cast and any of the people who will tolerate me from any of the other casts. Jonathan Frakes will pinch my ass whenever he sees me, which I always look forward to. <laughs> I think there I would was, too. <laughs> there was a rather hilarious set you did with Gates not too many years ago that I'm still working my way through. It's, it's oh. a good 45 minute set. It's nice. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I gate and Gates, Gates was a sport. I, I, Every now and again, you know, somebody throw me up on stage with somebody who doesn't know me, and it's like, I'm not very guarded, so, you know. Mm-hmm. And, of course, yeah. every now and again, you know, it'll be like one of those things where you're on stage, and there's they've, there's like a questioner or an interlocutor, and, and that person is like, I've prepared some questions that I want to run by you about. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, you go ahead. You just, just ask me one question, then shut up, and I'll just take I love all these guys. I really, I, I get along fabulously with all the people from Star Trek. They're all, they're all dolls and dear hearts, mm-hmm. and I don't see them enough. But you know, such is the world. Yeah. Is it like a instant brotherhood you're in? Once you're in a Star Trek show, everyone, all the actors, actresses, and all the other shows, like everybody's just kind of this. Welcome aboard. Big club. Right. The the conventions, you know, obviously are this are the difference maker. I mean, they throw us together. And and you know, if if you choose not to go to them, then I suspect, you know, I mean, Jolene has three kids, and you know, I think she she as as a very, very attractive woman had a 
an experience at, at one of the conventions early on that kind of put her off going. Oh, certainly doesn't need the dough. So, you know, for various reasons, she's not in the universe. And, you know, there are, I'm sure, other actors that I don't know about from various incarnations of Star Trek that aren't on that circuit. If you're at all on that circuit, yeah, you, 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 you know, you bump in and you chin wag with people. Mm-hmm. Even that said, even within the circuit, there are people who kind of keep to themselves more. And then there are carousers. And um, I'm, I'm, I don't need to tell you who the carousers are. I bet you know. <laughs> We've heard about it a bit. Um, yeah, that wraps me up for Star Trek. Uh, yeah. Right. So my last question, the, yes, it's in our other outside subcategory. You've got a library of 20,000 books behind you. You showed it off to us in the pre-show. What is your favorite sci-fi book, if you can think of just one, or what is one you want to specifically mention for me? Oh, okay, well, I, I don't know if I have a favorite sci-fi book because, you know, I mean, it's, it's, books are funny. It's like human beings, you know, the memory of the person you had lunch with yesterday is going to be held a lot stronger than the person you had lunch with 20 years ago, so. Then something um, recent that you really like. Yeah, I loved the Annihilation Trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer. Um, and I also am really partial to the writer N.K. Jemsen. Um, the Annihilation Trilogy uh, was particularly beautiful, I thought, because it takes a very interesting um, approach towards um, what what I would call uh, ecological sci-fi. You know, the nature of the nature of, of how systems morph and change. I don't really don't want to say anything about it. It's Lovecraftian. It's okay. They made it into a movie recently. No, yeah, the movie's good. No, 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 I agree with you, yeah. Yeah, but they only made the first one. Yeah. And it's a trilogy, and the thing takes on a very deep, interesting... I mean, if you cannot... The first one's great, but the the three of them, I think, are haunting. Uh, That, to me, is probably the most haunting sci-fi I've read in the last couple of years. I mean, I read across all sorts of different genres i suppose for lack of a better mm-hmm. word um i read i read a lot of fiction i read a lot, i usually read history fiction history fiction history fiction and within fiction I, I i just try and make sure that i'm reading books that are 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 recognized as being good books i don't i don't tend to read stuff that's like me mm-hmm. um, gonna make I, it worth your time that's awesome. for sure exactly 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 uh, life is short and 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 you know there are too many fucking books I've got a policy of I read a fiction and then a nonfiction and a fiction or a nonfiction, but these will be my next three fiction books then. Yeah, I, I really, 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 really. I just threw them in my cart on my Same. online shopping. Yeah, I, I mean, think the last know, time I. No accounting for. I'm sorry. I mean, they're, 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 um, they're, um, they're, uh, a, 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 they're darkly lyrical. And, and so, so there are, there are, are times when, um, you get a little finger drummy in terms of like, mm-hmm get on with it but I, I reread them and they're, they're 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 just beautiful in what they're after what they're what, wanting to get at about about um embracing embracing change yeah even this, beautiful this is kind of embarrassing but i think the last time i read a book was maybe 18 years ago so. he's never too you're never too young uh, <laughs> what kind of now what 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 kind of what kind of stuff do you like well so i obviously uh, well naturally read star trek books uh-huh. and the reason i liked reading star trek books and i got into more 
there was a period of time that I was a substitute teacher uh-huh. and basically you're a babysitter, you're babysitting the kids, you're uh, just making sure they're following the lesson plan and that the uh, nuts don't take over the nut house. So there's a lot of reading that can be done. And the reason I really liked reading the Star Trek books is because I knew the characters, I could visualize it, I could visualize scenes. So what I was doing was reading the book and playing it in my head at the same time as if it were an episode of that show or if it was a movie. So for me, it was it was very, very visual, kind of visual storytelling. Uh, so that was how I that was how I enjoyed doing it was this is this is in my head while I'm reading it because I can see the characters I can hear their voices etc cetera, etc cetera. a lot more engaging uh, engaging that way but once I stopped doing that job I kind of lost the time to put into readings like if that was the only thing to do great but there's always something else that I've got going on to do for me I I, you know I just it's just something that I grew up loving and and Mm -hmm. I I you know the people who climb mountains love to climb mountains and more power to them I just books are my you know they're my 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 passion and doubtless have ruined my life in many respects but you know I mean I, I I I'm not I, I, I beat the drum on it to this extent. I do think mm-hmm. that we live in a, in a world in which um, kids, kids should read more. Yeah. They should. Um, well, they're on their phones and they're doing their Nintendo 3DSs. Well, this, is a, this is an interesting thing that studies have discovered. When you read text on a screen, you absorb about 70% of the content because you skim. Because yeah. you're taught to read on a screen by skimming. Mm-hmm. When you read a book, you absorb much more of the context. And, and, and consequently, a lot of, I think this is one of the reasons why we are kind of a dumbass. Because when we read shit on a screen mm-hmm. all day long, we, we aren't really picking up all the material. Yeah. And, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We get used to skimming everything. Yeah. You know, we, we, we prefer memes to articles. Yeah. yeah. And it becomes we just dumb ourselves down slowly, slowly, slowly. I do think there's something. I have the same problem with audiobooks. I appreciate a good audiobook, mm-hmm. but it's different than having to to read a book slowly. It 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 engages your brain in a very specific way mm-hmm. that I think is critical to to a, a an informed population to a to a engaged sharp population. Yeah. I'm definitely guilty of skimming. Hell, I did that today. <clears throat> skim something got all uh it, it was for for a game there was this <laughs> for star trek online they've been having a lot of problems with this bug where you have to keep retraining your skills and your captain and as a uh, sort of apology here we're going to give you this thing and that thing as a thanks for bearing with us um and so i go into the game and i go looking for this thing and it's not there so I'm kind of ticked and I go back and I read the thing and it said, this will be available starting Friday. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So if I would have read, then I would have seen that, but I skimmed, was misinformed and got myself all, you know, got my knockers twisted yeah. on it. And Snap reading comprehension is a part of my job, right? Like yeah. I, I fix yeah. servers. So I get messages sent from customers and I have to just read through it, pick out important details, call them and let's talk about what the problem actually is. So snap yeah. reading assessment, I am so guilty of missing things as a result of it. 
So yeah, Which, I, you know, yeah, and 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 so much of what the reading we do is we're reading for like reading a newspaper. I mean, you're not reading for style; you're reading for quick content. Reading mm-hmm. on a screen, you're reading even faster. Reading a, a, a piece of literature, it's not just about content; it's about how the author achieves an effect. So you're reading as much for mood and style and tone and voice, and and that should slow you down. I read a lot of books twice, I, and I'm a slow mm. reader by choice because I I kind of think our job as readers is to say, hey, it's like a guy I just met. I want to give that guy every opportunity to introduce me to his soul. And I'm not going to fucking cursor, you know, cursorily breeze through him while I'm watching the ball game on TV. Mm-hmm. I want to give that guy my undivided attention. And I kind of feel like books offer you an opportunity in this world to do that in a, in a world in which we don't do that very well. Well, said. well, I've got a book recommendation for you. It's possible you've already read it, but I'll give yes. it a shot anyways. Yes. Infomocracy by uh, Malka Older. It's a near fiction, near speculative fiction. So I'd say 15, 20 years from now uh-huh. where elections have become so data analyzed uh-huh. that every 100,000 people have a representative and its national elections are handled completely differently. It's a manipulation at a level that the Republicans couldn't even dream of. You pick your own constituents kind of thing. Who's the writer? Malka Older. Okay. It's a pretty fun read, pretty quick. Has a lot of feels of Man in the High Castle to me. Let's hope it doesn't turn into another handbook for totalitarianism. (laughs) Handmade Tale and such, yeah. Yeah, pretty fucking amazing, isn't it? I mean, just like, wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, when Putin acknowledges the president-elect before the fucking... President does. McConnell, it's just like... Hey, John, I, uh, we're going to go into a closeout after this, but I have one last question. Yes. How many favorites- Don't give James Woods my address, by, but also, I, I, oh. I, I'm trying to think of all the people I've alienated tonight. He's probably number one, but you can, <laughs> cut, you can cut, probably cut that part because he's a violent man from what I He I'm was the first about. person I thought of when that topic aired its head a while ago. Oh, um, but let, let's ask a personal question, John. Right, do, do you have any favorite Sazerac recipes? Sazerac? That's the word. Um, uh, I, I I think that the trap of a, the trap of a Sazerac is you can overdo it on the uh, on the Perno or the Anisette. Uh, it wants to be it wants to have a, a a little bit of the flavor of licorice without being too licoricey. So um, that's all I will say. Some some Sazeracs uh, use brandy, which I I think is 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 not really supposed to be you know Sazerac, but I've had mm-hmm. good ones. Where did you come up with, how do you know I like a Sazerac? It's on your Twitter. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Are you running your Twitter or is that someone else? I did, I did well, enough homework. Fuck one sheep, as the old joke. <laughs> I did enough homework to know that you liked it, but not enough to find a pronunciation guide for it. Well, you know, it's a famous, it's a famous New Orleans drink. And uh, that's where my wife and I went on our honeymoon and where I lived for a little bit when I was a kid. And it's, it's uh, you know, one of the, the, great, the great cities in the world, particularly if you're a boozer. Which, which unfortunately I am. So. Uh, I, I think a good marriage for a closing line here is don't make fun of people who mispronounce words in speaking because they learned them by reading. That is very true. That That's is beautiful. Very, that is very yeah. true. That's um, very true. 
So we're just going to go into closers now. Um, hey, listeners and viewers, if you want to keep up with all of John's magnanimous efforts, head over to Twitter and give Hollywood Food Co. a follow. While you're there, give John a follow at John Billingsley 60 and do us the awesome favor of following Beyond Trek Pod. If you like us and want more, head over to Patreon and subscribe. 100% of your proceeds go to production expenses. We're doing the rest of this because we love it. If you're just listening, subscribe to us on YouTube at Beyond Trek Productions, where we will say the exact same things, but this time you can watch our reactions and shenanigans. Anything offensive that I said tonight, I was paid to say by these gentlemen, and those that's not how I really am. It was a bribe. It was a bribe. Was a there was a premium to get. They paid, they paid me to call Marina Sert as a has-been. They paid me. <laughs> I'd write a check for that. We are Beyond Trek Podcast. Lower your inhibitions and surrender your years. We will add inspirational and hilarious Trek content to your day. Your attention will adapt to subscribe to us. Resistance is futile. <laughs> <laughs>